Flyover Politic Podcast, the show for normal Americans. From this undisclosed bunker, here's your host, Tony Reed. are vaccinated and boosted, you may get COVID, but you are highly protected against severe illness. Schools can and should be open this winter. We have all the tools to keep kids safe. Unvaccinated kids are at risk, yet the vaccinated are going to have a way to protect them. Get vaccinated. If you're vaccinated, get boosted. Folks, I know we're all tired and frustrated about the pandemic. These coming weeks are going to be challenging. Please wear your mask in public to protect yourself and others. We're going to get through this. We're going to get through it together. We have the tools to protect people from severe illness due to Omicron if people choose to use the tools. We have the medicines coming along that can save so many lives and dramatically reduce the impact that COVID has had on our country. There's a lot of reason to be hopeful in 2020. But for God's sake, please take advantage of what's available. Please. You're going to save lives, maybe yours, maybe your child. Please take advantage of what we already have, okay? But I was sitting in my kitchen yesterday, and there's a sunroom off the kitchen, and my wife was there with her sister and a good friend named Marianne, and she was saying, do you realize it's over $5 for a pound of hamburger meat? $5? Well, this is partly, you know, the pound of beef today costs 5 bucks compared to less than 4 bucks before the pandemic. Good Sunday morning. Happy New Year. 2022 is here. Benjamin Franklin is credited with saying, yes, the founding fathers had created a republic, if we can keep it. But nearly 250 years after America declared independence and one year since the January 6th Capitol riot, American democracy will survive only if we can keep it. In recent weeks, we've learned that the riot was not a, uh, merely an explosion of violence prompted by Donald Trump's speech, but the result of post-election planning by anti-small-D Democratic forces at the highest level, up to and including the then-sitting President of the United States, to overturn the election and subvert the will of the American people. Their plan did not succeed because they did not have the power to make it succeed, at least for now. He had election laws, the secretaries of state, the local election officials. They didn't have them there to overturn the result. They don't plan to make this mistake again as they work to fill those positions with allies willing to do their bidding. And the more we learn about what the bipartisan January 6th House Committee is uncovering, the more we see that the focus increasingly is not only on what President Trump and his allies did on January 6th, but what they did before January 6th. Welcome back. A little twist on Data Download this week. We're going to take a look into the anatomy of the big lie, how it began and how it spread, and how, frankly, it has led 
to this sad fact that just 22 percent, one in five Republicans, say Joe Biden was elected legitimately. So how did we get here? Well, taking a look back shows us that Donald Trump has been laying the groundwork for this big lie, really, his entire political career. In fact, some say it all started more than five years ago, caucus night, 2016 in Iowa, where Trump, faced with his first big loss in the primary season, tweeted, Senator Cruz, Ted Cruz didn't win Iowa, he illegally stole it. Trump would later delete the tweet. But even after he won the presidency, he blamed his massive popular vote loss on these mythical millions of people who voted illegally. And in fact, to back up this lie, the president tried to establish a voter fraud commission, which ended up quietly disbanding after finding no evidence of widespread fraud. Then leading up to his 2020 showdown with Joe Biden, Trump spent months repeating lies about the election system overall, particularly casting doubt around increased mail-in voting and other election changes made due to the coronavirus pandemic. Here's a sampling. I think mail-in voting is, is going to rig the election. I really do. You're sending out hundreds of millions of universal mail-in ballots. Hundreds of millions. Where are they going? Who are they being sent to? This is just a way they're trying to steal the election. Then, before the votes were even counted, Trump attempted to declare victory on election night. You just take a look at all of these states that we've won tonight. And then you take a look at the kind of margins that we've won them by. We were getting ready to win this election. Frankly, we did win this election. And then, less than two days later. If you count the legal votes, I easily win. If you count the illegal votes, they can try to steal the election from us. And what is a better way to cast doubt on election results than to flood the zone with conspiracy theories, bizarre accusations, and lawsuits from your so-called dream legal team here? And the president got a lot of help from some far-right outlets like OAN and Newsmax, who sort of mainlined this propaganda, especially when his supporters felt that Fox News wasn't being, quote, loyal enough after they called the election for Joe Biden. Right now, Joe Biden is pretending to be the president-elect. They know they haven't won this thing fair and square. We here at One American News are the only ones providing truthful, accurate numbers as we believe President Trump, as you can see, still has a chance of winning. And in fact, take a look at this Newsmax viewership increase in the days after Election Day because Trump was trashing Fox and he basically pointing to the outlets that were believing his big lie. But it wasn't just on TV. Let me show you this. The far-right social media platform, Parler, they went from number 1,023 on the most downloaded free iPhone app ranking on November 2nd, 2020, basically just before the election, after a week of propaganda, number one in a week. At the same time, Trump and his allies were trying to come up with ways to get Congress to overturn the election results, and we all know what that led to. And since the January 6th insurrection, we've seen the Republican Party and the president himself perpetrate the lie and whitewash the violence that happened that day, saying things like, the insurrection took place on November 3rd, Election Day. January 6th was the protest. In fact, in the first three weeks of December of just last month, Trump's Save America PAC put out 19 separate releases promoting this big lie. That's almost one every day again, just last month. 
nearly more than a year removed from the election. And the impact from this ongoing big lie does live on. In fact, 10 out of 15 Republican candidates for Secretary of State in five key battleground states still question whether Trump lost the 2020 election. And among Republican voters, the impact is simply stark. Take a look at the erosion of confidence uh, that their votes will be counted fairly from this October compared to last October. Look at this. Right before the election, you had basically Republicans and Democrats feeling pretty confident about the election. Uh, a year of questioning it and gaslighting the Republican Party, as former President Trump has done, it has eroded that confidence basically in half. That is something that we're going to live well beyond talk of the 2020 election. Yamish, is this, it just feels like we may be in a cul-de-sac. It feels like we're in a cul-de-sac and it feels as though um, we're in this sort of polarized moment where the the lie of the election and, and, and the president, uh, former President Trump claiming that he won, that, that lie has just metastasized. And it's a cancer that's essentially taking over the GOP. I, I, I'm thinking about um, Representative Thompson talking about the fact that it took 187 minutes for former President Trump to speak out. And in that time, I remember standing on the White House lawn and talking to, to sources and everyone, including Republicans, they were all sort of seething and saying that the president needed to do something. Um, but but that really, that sense of, of, of outrage, that sense of urgency, it was gone by the next day. Um, and what you see now is even someone like Mike Pence, former Mike, former Vice President Mike Pence, who had to run for his life um, because people were chanting, hang Mike Pence. He's saying now we're talking too much about January 6th. And of course, there is the slow now second part of January 6th, where right. January 6th was not, of course, an end of the Trump era. In fact, I think it was a beginning of a new phase where the president has even more of an outsized um, influence on the GOP because you can't even get GOP primary candidates to say that Joe Biden is president. So I don't, I mean, it's interesting to see Republicans point to Democrats and say they're the reason why we're so polarized. And, and the reason why people wanted to, to smash right. into the Capitol is because people got mad at Black Lives Matter protests that got a little out of hand and got out of hand in some cities. But I think overall what we're seeing is a, a, a fragility of American yeah. democracy and Americans really not quite, I think, grasping how dangerous this is. Garrett Hake, how many Peter Myers are there now in the Republican Party who are, I would argue, wringing their hands about the state of the Republican Party, but if like, you know what, I, I'm just, I'm not going to be on the front lines of this fight right now. In the House, maybe a dozen, maybe less. And I think the challenge is in the next Congress, if Republicans pick up any seats at all, um, there will be even fewer proportionally. I mean, to Yamisha's point, the idea of the big lie as kind of a campaign issue, as a cultural issue in the Republican Party, has worked its way all the way down from former President Trump to state legislatures, to congressional candidates. It is everywhere. And that's what the next crop of Republican lawmakers in both House and possibly Senate are going to look like. So uh, this isn't going anywhere in the Capitol. What do you want to see Merrick Garland say when he speaks on Wednesday? What are you hoping to hear from the Department of Justice? You know, I would like them to say that they're going to, you know, really work very hard to make something happen here. I mean, I know the wheels of justice turn slowly. I get that. But, you know, a lot of people have suffered greatly. And it's not just the officers. It's not just the families of the officers that were harmed in this. You know, it's the American people. Uh, the American people that uh, voted uh, and, you know, wanted their voices heard 
and Trump and all the people that enabled him wanted to, you know, overthrow that. And it's scary. We just had uh, three, I think it was three generals that came out and uh, did, I think, an op-ed that said that they're fearful that another, uh, you know, uh, coup attempt is uh, looming in 2024. That's terrifying. Terrifying. Do you do you would um, you want to see members of Congress prosecuted if they were involved in planning or knew in advance about the insurrection? Oh, absolutely. And I believe that there are some that that did know. And we're still learning more about the attack and we're still processing what it meant to the country and to our lives. So, Hunter, is there a disconnect between the people who were there that day in D.C. and the people who were not? You know, someone like me who only watched it on TV. Will I ever really get it? You know, I think this was a really unique incident, in part because of when it happened during the pandemic. This was a pre-vaccination moment, and a lot of the D.C. press corps was, you know, working from home, working remotely. And unless they were the Capitol Hill press corps, like I believe Grace was, or someone like myself who went out to cover the protests, they didn't see this firsthand. And while, you know, we were there on scene... Um, Due to the crowds, due to the law enforcement response, cell signals were jammed. So there was a bit of a delay also in that footage getting out. That's a great point. And I think that distance, coupled with the fact that we see active attempts to deny the reality of what occurred, have sort of prevented people from realizing what happened that day. And what I've found, you know, I know this for myself, but in talking, you know, there's a bit of an informal network of reporters um, who've been through it that day and are still coping with that, who are leaning on each other and talking to each other. Um, I also talked to members of Congress, their staffs and law enforcement, members of the Capitol Police. Um, and we're all still dealing with that and feeling like we need to convey to others how serious it was. I mean, just one example, there are still members of the U.S. Capitol Police out with injuries that they suffered that day. From a year ago. Mm -hmm. Wow. And some journalists have been candid about PTSD and trauma. We're going to get into that. But on the topic of that day and the cell service and the, the lack of full awareness, I think it's really important to remember, it didn't look as bad on TV as it actually was. And that's not the fault of any television network or any producer or anything. It's just most of the live shots were from far away. We didn't see inside the Capitol the horrible violence, the attacks against police. There were only a few of those videos that came out during the day. It took several days to reckon with just how violent this was, and then several weeks to learn about the security failures and all the rest. So in other words, it was worse than it looked on live TV. And that's why people like you have been having to tell people what really happened. I mean, one hallmark of post-traumatic stress disorder is sort of having flashbacks um, and almost eerily clear memories. And for me, the single one that really haunts me hmm. is this moment when I was on the phone with my editor. Um, and I was a White House correspondent. So I started that morning covering Trump. Um, I was there at the Ellipse. And, you know, in the final 120 words of his speech, that's when, after over an hour, he told the crowd to march to the Capitol. And I just kind of went with them. Uh, mm -hmm. And when I got to the building, the barricades had already been breached. I saw everyone crawling over the inaugural stand. But it took a moment for me to realize that people were inside. And I got a call to my editor. And the moment I hung up from that call, and, and it's such a simple, stupid thought, but the thing that rang in my head as I looked in one of those windows was, this is bad. Because it was immediately apparent to me that um, shooting could break out from either side right. at any moment. 
just because people had breached such a secure building. And those of us who work as reporters in D.C. know how seriously law enforcement takes that. So I was so aware of the possibility of gunfire and trampling in addition to the violence that went out around me. And frankly, I mean, the police officers talked about this in the July hearing uh, with the select committee. They held back from shooting because they knew how dangerous that was. And that is among, including the bombs not going off, a series of small miracles that prevented this from being as deadly as it could have been. Becoming even worse. Grace, do you, do you have some of those same memories of the fear of, you know, of fearing for your life during that day? Elections matter. When you win an election, you get to set the rules. How can you win with Russian interference, though? That's, That's a real what I'm thing. scared about no, in 2020. But, but rightly. Because right. I think he's an illegitimate president that didn't really win. So how do you, you know, fight against that in 2020? You are absolutely right. So, again, as a member of the Senate Intelligence Committee, I will tell you that we should believe exactly what the intelligence community has told us, which is Russia did interfere in the election of the president of the United States in 2016. And welcome back to Flyover Politics Podcast. It is 1-6-2022. A day that will live in infamy. At least if you're watching our media. And uh, I did some, like, watching this morning. And I'm I'm just, I, I'm literally shocked. I'm just shocked. I mean, I expected him to politicize it. But for fuck's sake. Everybody on CNN was smiling. Biden's speech. It, it's I just don't understand why they do it all right listen everybody has a different view of one six uh you know a good friend of mine he thinks it's the worst thing ever 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 um he thinks Trump's to be blamed for it. Uh, he was aghast, but I, I, once again, just remember what it was like. Well, how about 2017? When gathered here in Washington today came to celebrate President Trump's inauguration. Protesters lined part of the parade route, and in some parts of the Capitol, there were confrontations with police. And tomorrow here in Washington, a women's march and demonstrations planned across this country. ABC's David Curley witnessed the protests firsthand. The anger reaching a boiling point in the nation's capital after President Trump took the oath of office. Police in riot gear facing off against the protesters just six blocks from the inaugural parade. Unleashing pepper spray, concussion grenades, all to disperse the crowd. They've been using pepper spray out of canisters. So you have the bulk of the protesters right here, and here's the police line right at 13th trash cans, and then three vehicles set on fire. Two vehicles have been ignited. The fire folks have just moved in. Many of the protesters cloaked in black with their faces covered. The protesters had filled the street with several trash cans, and now police and fire are trying to move them out of the way. Earlier in the day, self-proclaimed anarchists smashed Washington storefronts with hammers. 
Across the country, there were other but peaceful protests in dozens of cities from Boston to Minneapolis, these people forming a human chain across the Golden Gate Bridge. And you can hear the choppers actually flying over, over us uh, tonight. David Curley joined us from Franklin Square. David, what's the scene like right now? Well, the crowd has largely dispersed, David. Just a couple of dozen still here, but police are standing their ground, standing their line with batons in hand. More than 217 protesters arrested, six police officers. Yeah, the media completely forgets that. And how about George Floyd? small number of people in the scheme of things protesting to begin with, uh, very few of whom committed acts of violence, but that few 
was systematic in their efforts to harm police officers and to create damage to police vehicles, to storefronts, to other property. And again, that's not going to get us anywhere. But now it is time for people to go home. It's hard to process why, I mean, that's just a slice, a slice of it as a journalist, an MTP, for a guy who doesn't even know it's 2022. And the way they are sensationalizing this with Kamala Harris right, right there. I mean, the American people don't forget Hillary Clinton, Trump's an illegitimate president. They still say it. It hasn't stopped since day fucking one uh nbc lauded the protests in 2017 that did all sorts of 217 arrests six officers injured during inaugural protest that's more people than the capitol but it's wall-to-wall coverage and as i said they're smiling on cnn they are in this so much they know this is good for democrats it'll get some sheep to remember uh, CNN's doing something. It is just unadulterated politics. Democrat plan to politicize January 6th. It's going to be an emotional week for a lot of people on Capitol Hill with one year anniversary of January 6th siege. Congress plan an array of memorials and speeches to commemorate one of the darkest days in America. Lawmakers have the opportunity to tell their personal... They're on the floor right now. All week, Democrats will argue that the flurry of voting restrictions that were passed in GOP-controlled states over last year are a direct result of January 6 riots and the big lie promulgated by former President Trump and that democracy is still very much on the line. Yet some Dems think that an argument pegged January 6 could win over Cinema and Mansion, the party's two major holdouts against making an end run around the filibuster and the very Constitution that Biden spent, I mean, here, here's just part of his speech. For the first time in our history, the president had not just lost an election, he tried to prevent the peaceful transfer of power as a violent mob breached the Capitol. But they failed. They failed. This wasn't a group of tourists. This was an armed insurrection. They weren't looking to uphold the will of the people. They were looking to deny the will of the people. They were looking to uphold, they weren't looking to uphold a free and fair election. They were looking to overturn one. They were looking to save the cause of America. They were looking to subvert the Constitution. And on this day of remembrance, we must make sure that such attack never, never happens again. I say this with all sincerity. What did the media and Hillary Clinton do in 2016? The very people are on the committee right now investigating it didn't vote for Trump. We didn't have a problem with this. But as a Newsweek op-ed by Ben Weigarn, the year of ruling class cracked down on dissent. All they've done since they got into office 
is attack their opposition and say after they changed 80 voting laws and did massive mail-in ballots and proven ballot harvesting and, and just did some crooked shit that's outlined in many books, including Facebook running polling pro- station uh, stations, try to change the way we vote to the federal level. They've ignored the Constitution. They've ignored every law they don't like, including the border. Dumping people in red districts. J6 sensationalism revs up as Campaign 22 begins. They think they can win on this. They really do. They think it's the greatest thing ever. And then the part that's part of this, Glenn Greenwald, having unelected tech oligarchs ban duly elected members of Congress or even the sitting president from using a massive platform is dystopian. As American liberals, including their journalists, yet again celebrate and express gratitude to tech giants for silencing their political enemies, even elected officials compare their mindset to how the rest of the democratic world thinks authoritarians are. U.S. liberals don't realize and what a rogue and authoritarian faction they are because their media outlets keep all the dissent from them. Even as their party and leaders are overwhelmingly funded by large corporations, Wall Street and Silicon Valley, Democrats and liberals still like to posture as opponents to corporate power. The funniest part is how liberals invoke classic libertarian economics to justify corporations have the right to do what they want. If you don't like it, start your own platform. Meanwhile, Dems say these platforms are classic illegal monopolies. They go after parlor. I mean, we have never seen what is happening in our country. Today, Washington Post article on GOP attitudes on the 2020 election mentions a typical ignored fact. The overwhelming majority of Democrats and the media believed in late 2017 that Trump was not legitimate elected president. Hence, GOP views are not novel, even though they say it. In 2019, three years of the Trump presidency, Hillary Clinton herself proclaimed Trump as an illegitimate president that article, and accused the Republicans of having stolen the 2016 election. That prompted no pompous Atlantic essays on Democrat democracy in peril. But it's much worse than that. As late of 218, two-thirds of all Dems, two-thirds believe Russia tampered with the vote tallies in order to get Trump elected president. One of the leading advocates of the conspiracy was Neera Tandon, who he wanted to put on a big committee. Note that this polling data didn't just indicate that Democrats overwhelmingly believe that Russia interfered in the 2016 election and spread fake news to help Trump win. They do. What they also believed is 66% of them is that Russia altered the vote totals to make Trump win. And we covered that on the show. If any other presidency... A Republican politicized what is happening and said the words like Kamala Harris that I'm not even going to play, that this is on par with 9-11 and Pearl Harbor. And, oh, by the way, uh, Joy Reid all week that Sisnik was murdered. He even said the president armed insurrection, which is a total lie. It would be called what it is. Chuck Todd would come on and say it's all politics. 
But these people believe everybody that voted for Trump is a terrorist. Washington Post media columnists, we haven't obsessed over one-sixth or Trump enough. They need more. Political pay, playbook. It's going to be an emotional week, blah, 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 blah. Ben Shapiro, Democrats don't give two dams about January 6th. They care about exploiting January 6th in order to push forward an agenda to kill the filibuster and mandate corruption-ridden voting practices nationwide. This, from Politico, is the whole ballgame. That's all this is. It's kabuki theater. Seltzer ran it and said, oh, it's true. And they had that little soundbite you already heard about how they're dealing with it. And as all this is going on, they're saying democracy was in peril and Demo- Republicans did this and that. Those who manufactured the crusade to steal the 2020 election know how and why they failed. They are laying the groundwork to overturn the next election successfully. The coup is still underway. We've been covering that every week. That was Lawrence Tribe. Nobody believes it. Nobody believes this. The Republican Party image has recovered from the fallout of January 6th. The whole thing shows that nobody believes that it was what it was. Because we had 2017. We had George Floyd. Ashley Babbitt, say her name, is the only person... That's been killed. Who says it? My spouse does. My spouse, and not a very political person, says it. And she's right. Everybody else died of natural causes, overdoses, heart attacks. Sisnik had a fucking seizure. The only police officer to be killed in the last decade was a guy killed by a lefty. And just like the congressional baseball game, we buried it. Pointer, our Porter shares are minute-by-minute recollection of being trapped in the Senate on January 6th. CBS News' Grace Seegers was in the Senate press gallery when rioters overran the building was shuffling around with senators and chaos unfolded. I'm not even reading it. She's going around door-to-door. I'm a victim. They had somebody on TV today, a, a, a Democrat... Um, House member literally stating he has PTSD. One in three Americans say violence against government can be justified, citing fear of political schism pandemic. The post UMD poll coming a year after January 6th. They, you know, Google can suppress it. All the media cannot cover it. You can pretend that January 6th was novel. While you ignore just a while ago people ramming buildings and Kavanaugh and everything that's happened. All the violence after Trump was elected. All the violence after George Floyd. All the violence at every time they try to get a Supreme Court justice, the right does, and you slam Senate buildings and kick doors down and beat up cop. You can pretend. But Americans remember, even though Google will suppress it when you search, it's real. Anybody who's over 20 remembers. 
Civil liberties are being trampled by exploiting insurrection fears. Congress 1-6 committee may be the worst abuse yet. I'm not even going to read it because you know it. I mean, Liz Cheney is trying to win as a Democrat, so she's playing this stuff really hard. But everybody knows it's bullshit. The FBI went on CBS 60 Minutes and stated they did shock and awe. There are 700 people arrested for trespassing. They've gotten one person five years because he hit a cop with a fire extinguisher, which they then said was somebody who killed somebody with a fire extinguisher because they just fucking lie for a living. That's the whole tenets because nobody's going to go be able to see the tape because Nancy Pelosi won't let us see the tape. You can't see it because it doesn't fit their narrative. Do you think if it was as violent as they're all saying that we wouldn't be seeing the tape? No, they've spliced the worst of the worst small incidents outside and a cop getting crushed on the door. That, that's what they're doing because they don't have anything. It was what it was. Bullshit inappropriate yeah yeah it's inappropriate i'm not saying it wasn't but it was nothing compared to george floyd nothing nothing tom nichols overheard in downtown newport can't wait for january 6th that's when my president's coming back do you believe that does anybody believe what they're saying This is update and reposted. Real clear investigations. January 6th BLM riots comparison. Highlights. The summer 2020 riots resulted in some 15 times more injured police officers, 23 times as many arrests, an estimated damage in dollar term up to 1,300 times more costly than the Capitol riots. Authorities have pursued the largely Trump-supporting Capitol rioters with substantially more vigor than suspected wrongdoing in the earlier two cases, and prosecutors and judges alike have weighed stiffer penalties. Dozens of accused Capitol rioters have been held in pre-trial detention for months. For alleged crimes and been mistreated. In the summer 2020 riots, the vast majority of charges were dismissed as they were in the inauguration 2017 unrest. Prosecutors have dropped single capital riot case. And, and this, this is the data. It, it's, it, it, it's really bad. Let me put it up. Police officer fatalities, zero, 12. Assaulted and injured, 140. George, and that's capital riots of 2021. 2037 in George Floyd, 12 in inauguration. Non-officers who died, Ashley Babbitt's three others, 20 plus in George Floyd. Arrest, 710 the Capitol. 16,241 for George Floyd. Convictions 44. Assaults greater than 220. George Floyd 44. Weapons. They're using sticks. 79 for George Floyd. 1.5 million 
one to two billion with some saying four billion. Pre-tile detention. 40 defendants has been transported to DC jail with from home states in December. It's it's insane amount. 50 pre-trial, then released. Uh dozens held for months, a few for George Floyd, none. 71 sentences of January, 64 of whom received misdemeanor sentences with the most common charge pleaded at legally parading or demonstrating. And most of the dozen major jurisdictions, 90% plus the citations charged were dropped, dismissed, or otherwise nothing. 21 guilty pleas for what happened on the inauguration. There was one event. There was 8,700 events, 574 involving violence in 140 plus single cities. They found knives, flagpoles, fire extinguishers, baseball bats, taser, crowbars, George Floyd, guns, incendiary devices, including Molotov cocktails, vehicles, rocks, bricks, bottles, frozen water and glass, fireworks, including these improvised, and it goes on and on. I mean, it, it read more. Uh, hammers, wood, cinder blocks. There isn't a comparison between these two. There is no comparison. And Americans know it because Americans got affected by George Floyd. They didn't get affected by one six. These are the articles we're getting, and I'm not putting a lot of screen shows. I'm just going to keep this up today because this is this is the gist. They brag about it. The secret history of how they stole the fucking election. They're proud of it. Because Trump was a threat to democracy and shit. And his people are all white supremacist terrorists. Half of Republicans see Democrats as enemies who will destroy their way of life. Even more liberals say the same about Republicans. The headline should be, 70% of liberals think Republicans are... No, we, we, they're not violent people. They're into social justice and shit. Well, as stated, they're still saying Sisnik died because he's beat up. NPR, sedition hunters who identify 1-6 riot suspects. They're going around the country. They got proud art. Look at these guys. They're great. Just like Antifa. Antifa destroyed shit. And the media literally did articles about how awesome they were. Throwing bricks at motherfuckers. Good people. Casey Hunt. Tomorrow's going to be a tough one for those of us who were there or had loved ones in the building. Thinking of all of you and finding strength, knowing I'm not alone in this. Thank God for the USCP, DC, MPD, and every person who fought to keep us safe that day. January 6th. It's about them. Politico. Could January 6th happen again? It's only gotten worse. The long shadow of the night that broke the house. Uh, there's like hundreds of articles. Let's pick a couple. Why DOJ is avoiding domestic terrorist sentence for January 6th? Because they don't have any charges. And before playing the montage, I just want to play one soundbite. This was just last night. The New York Times editorial board marking the new year with this dire warning, writing, quote, January 6th is not in the past. It is every day. 
the republic faces an existential threat from a movement that is openly contemptuous of democracy. A lot of people may think that January 6th um, was the end of something, but you believe January 6th was the beginning of something. January 6th never ended in a lot of ways. It's ongoing. This is a January 6th that's happening every single day on the local level that is slowly tearing apart our democracy. We have one party that's being led by Trump here that seems to be trying to delegitimize our democracy. There remains a clear and present danger to our democracy. Very serious threat to our democracy. Threat to American democracy. Threat to democracy. The democratic emergency is already here. We face a serious risk that American democracy, as we know, it will come to an end in 2024, but urgent action is not happening. And this is a direct through line between what we saw on January 6th and this issue of voting rights. These two things are, are go hand in hand. Every other issue we want to deal with is contingent on whether or not voting rights and whether or not our democracy exists in this country. Whatever happened to the push in Congress to secure voting rights? It's now up to Democrats in Congress to act and save it. Time is running out. There are serious concerns among a lot of um, political experts, a lot of national security experts, a lot of journalists that the next election won't be fair. If you have a significant uh, win uh, for a Trump-led Republican Party, means that 2024 is going to be seen as illegitimate and potentially a constitutional crisis. It's because their party was almost thwarted. Too many people found out. Trump talked about election being stolen. In the retrospect... Objectively speaking, I'm not a Trumper. It was. 81 million people voted for Biden? Does anybody believe that? They changed 80 voting laws. They had Facebook running fucking polling places. Wisconsin's people are going to jail. They were doing all sorts of illegal shit. Suitcases under tables. I mean, get the fuck out of here. You know they did. So those people who were instigated to do it, and I can list all the things to talk about, the guy who never got charges, the pipe bombers. You know federal agents were in on this. You know Nancy Pelosi knew about it. There's an article here. Um, Pelosi owns J6 Commission, and that's why it failed. Nobody wants to say Pelosi also owns the security of the fucking house it's on her and while they're doing it if it's just about democracy then why are they talking about this on cnn we're seeing now there are some very 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 good people um who want to do the right thing but um there there's a sustained campaign against that manu yeah, I mean, look, I would say a couple of things. One thing I would say is that I, we've seen politics, you know, certainly my time covering Washington, just evolve each year into a more intense, more partisan, uh, more vicious, vitriolic atmosphere uh, to a point where we are probably at its lowest, I hope, uh, it's at least since, you know, since my time here, certainly, but ever since... So watching the, how the relations are in the House, uh, that you think it can't really get much lower, that eventually things will have to swing back to the other side. Now, I don't know how that's going to happen, uh, but perhaps uh, one day it will. I'm also just a firm believer in that the facts do matter, um, even if 
these days, people tend to have their own alternative facts and not arguing from the same set of facts. I do think that at the end of the day, the facts matter. Our job in the media is to report the facts. When we get it wrong, acknowledge our mistakes and uh, earn our tr earn trust from viewers and readers by uh, reporting the truth and speaking the truth. And if partisans on either side want to say whatever they want, let them say it. But we just have to keep saying it as it is. Well said. That's a nice place to end. Uh, certainly, not, <laughs> this was not a comedy, folks, but it's important to be, uh, to be, to be remembering and to be explaining and uh, trying to figure out ways to crack the code uh, of, of mis and disinformation. I also want to say before we go that you should definitely tune in to CNN all day tomorrow, but especially at eight o'clock, Anderson Cooper and Jake Tapper are going to be doing something really extraordinary. They will be inside the Capitol uh, at the rotunda, inside the rotunda, I should say, to have a unique conversation with so many different lawmakers and players who were around there on January 6th. Uh, of last year and looking ahead to trying to investigate what went what went wrong and uh, how it can be fixed for the next time. And then also, I want to say that uh, next week on Wednesday, January 12th at 2 p.m., I will do another one of these with uh, David Chalian, John King, and Abby Phillip. And we are going to focus on the midterm elections because it is an election year. Thank you all so much for your insight. Um, I'm really honored to be able to- Fox News. What the fuck's Fox News got to do with it? And, and, and once again, if this was about the event, if this was the worst event that's ever fucking happened and democracy was on the brink of extinction, like they keep saying, so they can federalize elections and make it all about them never losing, how can these two fuckheads get up and literally- I, I'm putting up- Light or fair, because both these people talking, how do they do this with a straight face? <laughs> to me, the true patriots were the more than 150 Americans who peacefully expressed their vote at the ballot box. The election workers who protected the integrity of the vote and the heroes who defended this capital. You can't love your country only when you win. You can't obey the law only when it's convenient. You can't be patriotic when you embrace and enable lies. Certain dates echo throughout history, including dates that instantly remind all who have lived through them where they were and what they were doing when our democracy came under assault. Dates that occupy not only a place on our calendars, but a place in our collective memory. December 7th, 1941, September 11th, 2001, and January 6th, 2021 to show how much garbage people they are brian seltzer shared the tweet Biden, you can't love your country only when you win you can't obey the law only when it is convenient you can't be patriotic when you embrace and enable lies 
Obey the law only when it's convenient. You're ignoring immigration laws. You've been doing it since Trump came in office. You're ignoring gun laws. You're about to ignore the Constitution and rewrite voting laws because you're afraid you're going to lose. None of this. This whole staged event that that idiot said is Pearl Harbor and shit. None of it is about democracy. It's about you're about to lose power. And you know, Mark Upgrove puts Biden on the today's list. This was FDR and Pearl Harbor, Lyndon Johnson and Selma, George W. Bush after 9-11. You guys said George W. Bush did 9-11. January 6th committee, considering holding hearings in prime time for maximum exposure. Because they can't justify taking over elections they have no way to justify it the only way they can justify it is by lying they're doing a vigil tonight a candlelight vigil democrats j6 vigil organized by left-wing activists behind violent disruptions of trump's inauguration assaulted gop senator's family the woman organizing a vigil Blah, 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 blah. The same Antifa-affiliated woman who planned disruptions for the inauguration of both President Trump and Bush. She also co-founded an organized group that had terrorized Senator Josh Hogley's wife and knew more baby last year over the Republican objections. Liz Butler is a partner with Movement Catalyst, the organizing host of official J6 Vigil in Washington, D.C., just one year after the infamous riot. According to her biography, which is listed first on the Movement Catalyst website, Butler has lengthy history of organizing radical protests to spark change and affirm social justice, economic justice, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, hmm. Yeah. Ben Shapiro, it's shown. January 6th is now being exploited by the political class to dramatically revise Republican institutions, including federalism and the filibuster. The outsized focus of January 6th by the media and Democrats is pure act of political opportunism and should be seen as such. Today is the first anniversary of January 6th, a riot predicated on a falsehood pushed by President Trump, a riot which did not prevent the certification of the election. It was not a coup or an insurrection, nor was it charged criminally as such. It was not a turning point for the Republic or a referendum on American political violence. It is now being exploited by political class to dramatically revise blah, blah, blah. The game is to suggest that January 6th was a grave threat to democracy and that the threat is now metastasized in a full-blown political program pressed by mainstream Republican Party and that this required concern Concerted democratic destruction of institution. Biden is not hiding the ball. Schumer is not hiding the ball. Pelosi is not hiding it either. And the question of January 6th would remain whether riots are bad, whether the criminals should go to jail, or whether we ought to follow legally certified election results. We all agree. But the question has now morphed, and it has morphed within hours of January 6th events. The question morphed into whether the entire Republican Party and all of its voters should be saddled with a mantle of insurrectionary violence. And the follow-on question becomes, just how much should evil Trump voters be censored, Polar and AWS? Or whether we should dispense with the filibuster to save democracy? Or whether we ought to federalize voting procedures like ballot harvesting and banning voter IDs? all things they want. The crocodile tears from the left about the woes of police officers on January 6th ought to be taken to precisely the questions 
uh, seriousness they deserve given their 2014 to 2021 quest to label police systematically racist and ignore massive violence against cops by the BLM. And their tears from left about refusal to accept election results ought to be taken precisely the seriousness they deserve from the party of Stacey Abrams and... Russian election interference and Facebook is to blame. One need not downplay the evils of January 6th or the lies of Trump post-election in order to recognize the game being played. Politics is always politics. They didn't do this speech because America needed to be reminded. All you have to do is pick up any paper and tune into any channel. They've been waiting for this day moist and hard. And since they believe there is no gender, some of them are moist and hard because they have both. This was their day. And here they are. I am a politic, the media jerk-off of the week. A new report is detailing what it says are the biggest risks facing the globe in 2022, and the findings may surprise you. It's a report that comes from the Eurasia Group. That's a political risk and research consulting firm. Closely watched report. It ranks the top global risks every single year. And the president and founder of Eurasia Group, Ian Bremmer, joins us now to detail this report. We're going in reverse order on the top three, Ian. Number three, midterm elections here in the U.S., a top risk for 2022. How come? Well, maybe the, the least of the surprises, uh, this is the most important uh, midterm election in American history. Uh, we have January 6th coming up in just a day. Uh, and as you know, since the profoundly challenged uh, and uh, elections of 2020, uh, the, no lessons have been learned at all uh, in the United States. The country is much more divided. And a large number of Americans, some 64 uh, percent in an NPR poll yesterday, said they thought the United States democracy was in crisis. Uh, unlike countries like Japan and Germany and uh, and Canada in the last few months have had uh, very successful elections. The United States has an election process that is increasingly broken, uh, increasingly delegitimized, and the midterm elections, especially uh, if you have a significant uh, win uh, for a Trump-led Republican Party, means that 2024 is going to be seen as illegitimate and potentially a constitutional crisis. In the world's most powerful country, it's hard not to rank that. Finally, it's officially 2022 which mean midterms are now in full swing and the odds are not with the Democrats to maintain their majority on Capitol Hill. Not, I have a, a question that is blowing my mind, my friend. How on earth is Herschel Walker running neck and neck with Raphael Warnock? Please tell me, Fernand, that there is a pathway to block this man from kicking Raphael Warnock out of the Senate. Well, I don't want to start 2022 in uh, doomsday mode, uh, Tiffany, but the truth of the matter is uh, it is a very difficult environment. I said right now, these states and all of these races that are going to take place across the country and where the majority is at hand for the Democrats is tied directly to the performance of President Biden at the national level. All of these races have been nationalized. And the reason I think it's close in Georgia and it's close in some of these other states, even Arizona, is because President Biden's approval rating now is sunk to some of the lowest points it's been at his presidency. Unless he can rise that approval rating and start to show 
and convince the American people of the really strong work that the Biden administration has done, transformational work in this past year, uh, it's going to be very difficult to hold the Congress. And that presents a very difficult situation for democracy. I agree with, you know, Fernando. It is difficult when you have the Biden administration struggling in so many parts of the country and how they're being able to relate and talk about their accomplishments. As you know, there are no black women in the Senate currently, which brings me to you, Fernand. You're in Florida, my friend. Tell me that Congresswoman Val Demings will become Senator Val Demings, especially <laughs> given all the things happening uh, in Florida right now. What are her chances looking like? Well, Tiffany, I never lie to you or, or the viewers. And as much as I would personally like to see her defeat, who I think is the least respected and maybe one of the worst members in the Senate, Marco Rubio, uh, right now, again, she's going to have a difficult time because Florida is now the state that you might call MAGA state. So, Stephanie, you're in Ohio, a state that, again, some Democrats have now said has been abandoned. They say it's red. It used to be sort of purple one way or another. You're having to sit down with Joe Biden, theoretically, whether the two things that you think he needs to make sure he has accomplished by June of 2022 in order to raise his numbers so that he is not sort of a, 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 an albatross on the neck of, Repu of Democrats who are going to be running this fall. Well, I think there's two things. One is in the, the political realm, and, and I think it's really important. We have um, to do some some work when it comes to voting rights. We need to now baseless claims about the 2020 election largely inspired those riots at the Capitol last year, but also changes to voting laws in a number of states that could have a big impact as we're now in a midterm year. Ex ex explain that to us. The very structure of voting has changed in this country in a substantial way just in the last year. 19 states have put new laws onto the books that make it harder to vote or change the voting processes in a way that adds a burden for many, many voters. So this is not just an academic argument. Many of those laws were inspired by the lies that President Trump and his supporters told. Others were just sort of straightening up some loose ends after the COVID era. But make no mistake, people are going to be voting differently, uh, including in some very big states like Georgia, Texas, Florida, Arizona, big changes on the Books. People have to do their homework and figure out uh, how those changes will affect them. And keep in mind, Janae, it, it, we're already in it. Uh, the first voting of 2022, believe it or not, is going to be taking place in Texas just next month in advance of their March 1st primary. Like you said, people have to do their homework and voting rights will remain in the spotlight as we head into the mid times in that process. That may well lead to the types of referrals that we've heard Liz Cheney and others mention recently. But this is all about linkages, figuring mm. out who's connected, what the connections were, and essentially in the language of my people, whether there was some form of a conspiracy underway. Speaking of linkages, um, there's been some news made on my friend Hallie Jackson's uh, program, Yamish. Uh, Congressman Adam Schiff has confirmed some reporting from Axios that the January 6th Select Committee has invited one Sean Hannity to voluntarily visit with the committee, chat with them about what he may or may not know. As you all know, um, his, um, I believe his text messages were among the many that Liz Cheney read from um, and uh, that data dump that they received from Mark Meadows before he defied the subpoena and was held in criminal contempt of Congress. He did turn over text messages he'd received from Fox News anchors, Trump family members. One of the Fox News anchors was Sean Hannity. And Congressman Adam Schiff confirming that the committee would like for Sean Hannity to voluntarily meet with them, Yamish. The um, people close to the president that they are interested in, that they have engaged, is really, really getting closer and closer to Donald Trump.
That's definitely true. You can see that this is a committee that is ramping up its work, that's really trying to close in on that inner, inner circle of President Trump, former President Trump, and to really understand sort of who was talking to him and who he really respected enough to, to sort of weigh their opinion. Um, and Sean Hannity, for anyone who has covered former President Trump, everyone knows that he is someone who was in the president's orbit. They were speaking regularly. Um, the president really took his his sort of advice to heart. Um, it also in some ways is, is a reminder that Fox News, while it's sort of supposed to be a cable news channel, what it really was um, and, and continues to be is sort of this fringe um, wing of the GOP and, and really the, the, the hosts on there, um, especially the, the late night opinion hosts on there, they have in some ways turned out to be even more powerful than the, the elected officials um, that were trying to listen, that were trying to talk to former President Trump, including Mitch McConnell and others. So this is really, I think, an interesting move. It really shows that they are trying to understand what former President Trump was thinking, what he was telling people at the time. It's very interesting that this is voluntary. We'll see if this, of course, gets gets to be a sort of subpoena level. Um, it's unclear what, what, what goes on there. But it's interesting to me that Sean Hannity is now having to face um, a, a difficult decision here and, and whether or not he's going to come in and say, here's what the president told me. I would think a broadcaster like Sean Hannity would welcome an opportunity to communicate as only he can um, with the 1-6 committee and, and a one-time friend, Liz Cheney. Uh, let's listen to what he said to Hallie Jackson. We have that. Are you looking for information or for cooperation from Mr. Hannity? Yes, uh, and I think you'll see an announcement about that uh, very soon. Um, you know, we believe that he was texting with the chief of staff. Uh, and that he has information that would be relevant to our committee. Um, he was more than uh, a Fox uh, host. He was also a, a confident advisor, campaigner uh, for the former president. Uh, and I would hope that if he's asked by the committee, as I expect he will be very soon, that he would cooperate with us. And that's a voluntary request, just so I'm clear on that? Um, I, uh, my understanding, and you'll get confirmation of this very soon, is that we are making a voluntary request uh, that he speak with the committee. I mean, it goes to reason, Katie Benner, that if they're looking for the voluntary cooperation of Sean Hannity, it might be based on what he was conveying to Mark Meadows. And they might also be interested in the voluntary participation of Laura Ingram, Donald Trump Jr., all those folks who texted the White House chief of staff and seemed to be under the belief that there was one person who could stop the insurrection, and that was Donald Trump. Absolutely. And it also speaks to Mark Meadows's role and how little we really know about it. Meadows himself has emerged in many places in the, in the months leading. Aguilar later said she never breached the building nor participated in violence. And since then, she's taken her fight back home. It's all about local legislation, your local school districts, your city council, board of supervisors. So it kicked off as a national movement that it's now parents are realizing we need to start coming to the local government. Her shift is part of a broader trend, according to Jared Holt, who studies domestic extremism at the nonpartisan think tank, the Atlantic Council. Domestic extremism is really like a fluid that matches the container that it's in in any given moment. In a new report, Holt says that following backlash and hundreds of arrests connected to the attack on the Capitol, far-right activists have shifted their focus from national politics to local. A lot of the adaptations that we've seen came in the form of kind of decentralizing these national movements. What are these extremists all talking about at the local level? What is the content? A lot of them are taking it upon themselves to 
re-engage in the broader conservative culture war. We are here to protect the... Like many who share her goals, Aguilar uses alternative social media platforms like Telegram to organize and strategize. This is what they're doing at the school board meetings. But Those go-local tactics also being embraced by prominent white nationalists. This is the right approach. Going to the school board meetings, going out to protest. Groups like the Proud Boys responding, taking to the streets of towns in Long Island and North Carolina. Way. The committee has first-hand testimony now that he was sitting in the dining room next to the Oval Office watching the attack on television uh, as, as the assault on the Capitol occurred. Uh, we know, uh, as you, you know well, uh, that the briefing room at the White House is just a mere few steps from the Oval Office. The president could have at any moment walked those very few steps into the briefing room, gone on live television, and told his supporters who were assaulting the Capitol to stop. He could have told them to stand down. He could have told them to go home. Uh, and he failed to do so. Uh, it's hard to imagine a more significant and more serious dereliction of duty uh, than that. Is his failure to make that statement criminal negligence? You know, uh, I think that, that there are a number of, as the chairman said, uh, potential criminal statutes uh, at issue here. Uh, but I think that, that there's absolutely no question that it was a dereliction of duty. Uh, and, and I think one of the things the committee needs to look at as we're looking at a legislative purpose is whether we need enhanced penalties for that kind of dereliction of duty. Uh, but, but I think it's also important for the American people to understand how dangerous Donald Trump was. Uh, we know as he was sitting there in the dining room next to the Oval Office, uh, members of his staff were pleading with him to go on television to tell people to stop. We know Leader McCarthy uh, was pleading with him to do that. We know members of his family. We know his daughter. We have firsthand testimony uh, that his daughter Ivanka uh, went in at least twice uh, to ask him to please stop this violence. Uh, any man who would not do so, any man who would provoke a violent assault on the Capitol to stop the counting of electoral votes, any man who would watch television as police officers were being beaten, uh, as, as his supporters were invading the capital of the United States, is clearly unfit for future office, uh, clearly can never be anywhere near the Oval Office uh, ever again. Hillary Clinton said a couple of weeks ago that if he runs and wins, that could be the end of our democracy. Do you share that fear? I do. Uh, I think it is critically important, given everything we know about the lines that he was willing to cross. He crossed lines no American president has ever crossed before. You know, we entrust the survival of our republic into the Is his failure to make that statement criminal negligence? You know, uh, I think that, that there are a number of, as the chairman said, uh, potential criminal statutes uh, at issue here. Uh, but I think that, that there's absolutely no question that it was a dereliction of duty. Uh, and, and I think one of the things the committee needs to look at as we're looking at a legislative purpose is whether we need enhanced penalties for that kind of dereliction of duty. Uh, but, but I think it's also important for the American people to understand how dangerous Donald Trump was. Uh, we know as he was sitting there in the dining room next to the Oval Office, uh, members of his staff were pleading with him to go on television to tell people to stop. We know Leader McCarthy uh, was pleading with him to do that. We know members of his family. We know his daughter. We have firsthand testimony uh, that his daughter Ivanka uh, went in at least twice uh, to ask him to please stop this violence. Uh, any man who would not do so, any man who would provoke a violent assault on the Capitol to stop the counting of electoral votes, any man who would watch television as police officers were being beaten, 
uh, as, as his supporters were invading the capital of the United States, is clearly unfit for future office, uh, clearly can never be anywhere near the Oval Office uh, ever again. Do you think that lack of action on January 6th may actually warrant a criminal referral? Well, the only thing I can say is highly unusual for anyone in charge of anything to watch what's going on and do nothing. And is it criminal? We will as well, we don't know. Uh, we're in the process of trying to get all the information. But I can say if there's anything that we come upon as a committee that we think would warrant a referral to the Department of Justice, we'll do that. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's our oath as members of Congress. So it's not just that, it's, it's any of the other things we're looking at. Mm -hmm. If there's any uh, confidence uh, on the part of our committee that something criminal uh, we believe has occurred, we'll make the referral. Let me just ask one more question about uh, the former president and what he was doing or not doing as the Capitol was under attack. I know you're still trying to get the records, but you have spoken to a lot of people, maybe people we don't even know about. Have you learned from witness testimony more about what he was or wasn't doing? Uh, yes, we have. Uh, we have significant testimony that leads us to believe that the White House had been told uh, to do something. Uh, we want to verify all of it so that when we produce our report and when we have the hearings, uh, the public will have an opportunity uh, to see for themselves. But uh, Dana, to be honest with you, what occurred on January 6th played out in full view of the American public and the world. Mm -hmm. And we want to make sure that that never, ever happens again. So we need to get it right. We need to get all the facts and circumstances. And that's what the committee's body of work is about uh, doing at this point. Did or has the former president obstructed an official proceeding of Congress? Well, uh, what he's doing is the typical Donald Trump uh, modus operandi. Uh, he sues, he goes to court, he tries to delay. Uh, if he continues to be successful at delaying, obviously it inhib inhibits the committee's work. Uh, we're doing a lot, but we have to have access to the records. Uh, President Biden has said executive privilege uh, does not apply. So we think uh, we will have access to a lot of the records necessary for us to complete our work. Uh, if we have access to the records, uh, then former President Trump's wishes on delaying uh, will have no bearing on our, our work. I mean, if you talk to experts who, are, who have seen and studied democracy for decades, that's what they would say. They would say this is a paradigm that needs to shift and that America needs to understand that this is a January 6th that's happening every single day on the local level that is slowly tearing apart our democracy. I will say that I think it is interesting when you look at sort of who is speaking out um, and who the profiles, the quote unquote profiles of courage are if you're looking for someone to push back on, on Donald Trump. If you're a Republican who's thinking about sort of speaking out against this, look, you, you look at Liz Cheney and realize sort of what your future will be in this GOP. I also think it's interesting, Ken, Katie made a really smart point about sort of why would Sean Hannity not want to come talk to the committee? And it's because those same people who were, of course, texting Mark Meadows saying the president, former President Trump needs to stop this, they've now sort of all shifted 
to sort of this worldview that no, this is there, there was something funky that happened in the 2020 election. There must have been some sort of fraud. That, of course, is a lie. We know it's not true. But Sean Hannity, of course, is someone along with a number of people at Fox News um, and a number of, of, of course, establishment. We thought of a, an establishment elected Republican officials have sort of just decided that they're going to embrace this because their voters um, and President Trump, who has so much power, are sort of requiring for them to have this um, this lie and perpetuate this lie as part of a Fox host saying this live on the air. I work at Fox. I want to see disarray on the left. It's good for America. It's good for our ratings. Joining us now, CNN political commentator S.E. Cup. I mean, I'm, I'm just filing this under stuff we already knew, I guess. Yeah, it's the quiet part. He said the quiet part. Um, I never would have imagined calling Jesse Waters uh, a, a scholar. However, I think what he just did is really articulate the sort of the three pillars of the new American right. Um, the first is that there are two Americas, not one. He talks about, um, you know, wanting to see disarray on the left as if it is somehow not also wanting to see disarray in America and not just in a political party, but wants real pain in the streets. Uh, that's because we are not the United States anymore on the right. There are, there are two Americas. One is righteous. One needs to be sort of excised. Um, number two is that the cruelty is the point, right? They want to see the pain and the disarray. They want people like Joe Biden and AOC and Pelosi and, and liberals to suffer. Um, they're not interested in changing hearts and minds with ideas. They want to see the pain because the cruelty is the point. And thirdly, um, ratings above all else. Uh, that's true at Fox, where certainly ratings have seemed to trump public health and safety and also like facts. But it's also true of the attention economy that has really gripped the right for people like Trump and Marjorie Taylor Greene. You, you said this, uh, I believe, yesterday. You said every politician says this is the most important election of our lifetime, and that's true, fact-checked, uh, have, having covered many, many elections. It may be, but it could also be the last one. Republicans have chosen violence over voting. We have to outvote the violence. Saddle up. What does that mean? Chris, I'm worried that if Republicans uh, win in the midterm elections, uh, that voting as we know it in this country will be gone. They're already putting as many barriers to the ballot box as possible in Arizona, Florida, Texas, Georgia. And on the other side of the finish line, they're putting in place processes where they could reverse the outcome, even if we crawl through glass and run through the fire to get to the ballot box. And so uh, if they are able to win the House, uh, the damage they could do, uh, you know, to permanently uh, make it difficult to vote and, and just alter the way that we participate in a democratic process uh, could be irreversible. And, and so uh, this may not be, as I, as I said, uh, this is not only the most important election. Uh, if we don't get it right, it could be the last election because they're also putting in place what I believe uh, is a way to make sure that Donald Trump wins uh, with what they're doing across state legislatures uh, to allow them to reverse the outcome in the Electoral College. And that's why I also put in a link to IWillVote.com, uh, a nonpartisan group that allows you to check your registration status and register to vote if you're not already registered. If the stakes are this high, uh, and they're as high as you say they are, I mean, it, it seems to me that it's absolutely incumbent upon the Democratic Party to use the majority they have uh, in the House and the Senate to do something about it legislatively. Um, obviously, you can't control that. You can, certainly can't control it from your perch in the House. But um, are you optimistic 
Chuck Schumer's made some noises about that this year, uh, that, that the Senate and the full 50 senator caucus on the Democratic side understands that same urgency that you do. We've done our work in the House, uh, Chris, the For the People Act, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, and now we have to create the public sentiment that moves the senators to do their job. Because, uh, Chris, as I said, this is it. If, if we don't get this right, we know what we're up against. We're up against a party that prefers violence over voting. They are so disaligned with where everyday Americans are. They lie about the vaccine. Overwhelmingly, Americans want us to be vaccinated. They lie and they continue to promote laws that make us less safe around gun safety when overwhelmingly Americans want to be free from gun violence. And as it relates to a woman's right to make her own health care decisions, they are disaligned with where the majority of Americans are, but they are taking away that right in states like Texas. They would do that all over the country. So this is truly a pivotal election. There cannot be enough downward pressure put from President Biden on Senators Manchin and Cinema, and there cannot be enough outside pressure put on them uh, from everyday voters like your viewers. Um, there's polling data, which I think we'll talk about also later in the program, that just shows that the Republican Party's reputation has recovered, basically, in the last year, uh, that that um, the, the percentage of voters saying they're headed in the right direction went down to 24 percent right after January 6th. It's now back up to basically where it was in the summer of 2020. Again, only 34 percent of voters from not like a majority saying like, yay, Republican Party. But I guess the question is, how do you navigate this, the, the conditions of basically talking to voters who may not be thinking about the fate of American democracy as a front of line issue, and I think a lot of voters probably aren't, with the stakes of what you feel this moment mean? We have to tell them what we delivered on, as I said, the rescue plan, infrastructure, jobs, ending this pandemic once we get enough Americans vaccinated. But we need to remind them what it would mean to have the Republicans in power. And every Republican candidate should have to answer a few questions. Will you acknowledge Joe Biden is the president? Will you disavow QAnon? Will you support the candidate who wins your state in 2024? And will you disavow Donald Trump and the violence that he continues to contribute to? If they can't answer those four questions, they will contribute to chaos. We are a law and order country, Chris, and this Republican Party has chosen chaos, and the voters need to know that, and it's our job to make sure that that's clear as we go to the ballot box. We're all looking not just to the past, not just to a year ago, Phil. We're looking to the future. We're looking to 2022 and, and also to 2024, where there are serious concerns among a lot of um, political experts, a lot of national security experts, a lot of journalists, that the next election won't be fair and that the person who loses the election might be the one who becomes the president-elect. What is the White House doing about this? I mean, I texted a senior official the other day and they didn't even get back to me. Are, are, can they do anything? Well, they're limited, Katie, in what they can do. Uh, President Biden campaigned on restoring and protecting democracy. He said that would be a hallmark of his presidency. And, uh, you know, clearly uh, the administration would like voting rights to pass uh, in the Congress in the coming weeks. Obviously, that's been a priority for some time that has uh, slipped behind infrastructure, behind Build Back Better, has lost momentum on Capitol Hill. And I think there's going to be an effort in coming days to use the anniversary of January 6th to revive that. But passing a voting rights bill is simply not enough to uh, to protect, to fortify democracy. There are a lot of people who think that 2024 is going to be violent. 
Is there anything being gamed out for 2024? If X happens, we're going to do Y. If there is another violent insurrection with millions of people or thousands of people, if there are more armed people who try to forcefully take over state, state houses, et cetera, is there a, a contingency plan being sorted for 2024? I hate having to talk about this with you guys because it is scary. Well, I think the big question that a lot of people are going to want to know, including Sean Hannity's viewers, is what is Sean Hannity hiding? What does Hannity know that he's been hiding from his audience? Because he has an audience of millions of people who rely on him, who trust him, who believe him, even though he's given them many reasons to disbelieve. And so what has he been hiding from them for the past year? I think it's very significant this is voluntary. It's not a subpoena. It is not the situation where we're going to be talking about a dramatic First Amendment debate. Certainly, if it did escalate to that point, there would be interesting questions about the role of a media personality who acts as a shadow chief of staff to a former president and what that shadow chief of staff knew in the days leading up to the riot. That's an interesting First Amendment issue at some point, but this is just a voluntary request. And let's also remember that Sean Hannity has repeatedly and loudly for the last 11 or 12 years said that journalism is dead in America. He says journalism is dead, but all of a sudden, as soon as there's a request from a legal committee he doesn't like, he wraps himself in the First Amendment flag and says this would breach the First Amendment. So I think it really comes down to that key question. What's he hiding? What has he known well, for the past year that he hasn't told his viewers or told the public? Is he in on it in some way? As we know, we're learning about yeah. this vast conspiracy. Was he in on it in some fashion? And if not, I'm sure he'll want to share that as well. On December 31st, a week before the insurrection, Hannity seemed to warn Meadows that top lawyers at the White House were on the verge of resigning in mass to protest Trump's plans to overturn the election. He texted, quote, we can't lose the entire White House counsel's office. I do not see January 6th happening the way he is being told. On January 5th, the day before the insurrection, the committee says Hannity seemed to sound the alarm, texting, I'm very worried about the next 48 hours. And the next day, those fears were realized. During the riot, Hannity texted Meadows, quote, can he make a statement, ask people to leave the Capitol? That night on Fox News, Hannity condemned the rioters. And all of today's perpetrators must be arrested and prosecuted to the full extent of the law. And days after the riot, Hannity wrote Meadows and Congressman Jim Jordan, describing a difficult conversation he had just had with Trump, writing, quote, he can't mention the election again, ever. I did not have a good call with him today. And worse, I'm not sure what is left to do or say, and I don't... And last but not least this hour, some New Year's resolutions for the news media. Nicole Hemmer is back with me, author of Messengers of the Right. Let's uh, figure out what the press should be doing in the next 12 months. Do you have a resolution for us, Nicole? I do. Uh, the big one is to have a long memory. The destruction of mm. democracy is not a 2020 story. It's not a 2021 story. It's going to be with us into 2022. It's going to be less splashy. It's going to be in state houses and the Supreme Court and in Congress, and it's not going to necessarily come dressed up as an insurrection. So keeping the eye on the story, even when it's not, you know, those gripping images that we've had from the past two years. Right. It is. It, it's one of these drip, drip, drip events or stories that are hard to cover. But hey, that's an important challenge for the media. Absolutely. Right. Nicole, thanks so much. Thanks so much for having and me. And thanks to all of you for joining. When you're smiling and you're linking it once again, to Fox News and all Republicans. It says everything about you.
It just says everything about them. It's all linked to we have to change all voting laws because they might win. And people are smart enough to hear that shit. I mean, it's all, all the time. It's just not MVP. Sorry, Aaron Rodgers, but I hope this spreads. Dead spin. I'm not voting for him because he didn't get vexed. That's that's what they do. That's what they do. And I'm literally going to pay for the New York Times because it's greater it's greater than you think it is. It's more than anybody thinks it is because it's more than just voting laws and where the country's going to go. It's it's down to the 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 bare nuts and bolts of who we are as a country, what we believe in. This is... Hold on a second. Let me do this shit. Maybe later. Continue. All right, let me try to get to history because I just took my article away by doing it. What does marriage ask us to give up? These are the people that are good. This is a black girl. I had a whole argument for most of last night about BLM. And the poor brown kid, they decided when they found out what it was that he couldn't do it. Yet just last year, BLM was on Bubba Wallace's car. And once again, looking at it objectively, if you say less yes to BLM, an organization that trashed 140 fucking cities got fucked up. Including poor little fucking Wisconsin towns. All those injuries, and even that site that I showed you, I mean, there are people that say 36 cops were killed in the line of duty over this. And that's not even counting the COVID. Because remember we said COVID couldn't break through BLM because it was so righteous. But BLM's not for the family. And she writes this article. I spent most of my 20s, 30s only to single, only to marry, and then come to the conclusion that my marriage should end. Now I am single again, but I am not alone. My marriage ended during the pandemic, which I was at home with the family since the pandemic began. My daughter and I have been living in with my family, jokingly calls the compound, a house my mother and I bought together before I was married. She and my sibling, blah, blah, blah. Compound is an only place. What does not materialize is the intense loneliness that people warned about. And da, 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 da. Fuck it. I can't believe it's paid a dollar for this because really, what it really comes down to at the end, why? Why do you need it? Why? The cover of the New York Times, Capitol Riot commemoration underscore nation's fractures. Where did the fractures come from? Tell me. Where did it come from? Does anybody know? 
It comes from the left. Every election we have, it's the end of democracy if those people win. Carnage. They're going to put you in chains. They're going to take away gay marriage. That's, there's one side doing this every time, and I'm not a Republican. Against the John Lewis voting rights, Hans A. Von Spivonsky. I was going to read it, but I'm let Ben Shapiro do it. Okay, so the Democrats, of course, are, are making clear that they are tying January 6th to 2022, right, the, the midterms. The fact is the Democrats know they're going to get skunked in the midterms unless they change the rules. And so the rules have to be changed. And the way that they seek to change the rules is with a couple of bills. They originally had the For the People Act. That completely fell apart because it had no support. Then they started trying to push forward the the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. That is Senate Bill 4, HR Bill 4. Right. So that, that, that particular act is designed to vastly expand federal oversight of state and local elections via use of the Voting Rights Act. The suggestion being that without any evidence of actual racist intent, if there is, quote unquote, disparate impact in, in redistricting, for example, the federal government will now have to oversee that. And there, there's not a lot of Republican support for, for the John Lewis Voting Rights Act because there shouldn't be. Hans von Spakovsky, who writes for Heritage Foundation, has a very good breakdown of the John Lewis Voting Rights Act and exactly what it would do. He says the stated purpose is to prevent racial discrimination, but it would force racial gerrymandering, make race the predominant factor in the election process, advance the partisan interests of one political party, and prevent common sense election reforms like voter ID. It would also change Section 3 from requiring a show of intentional discrimination to allow other violations of the VRA to count toward triggering preclearance coverage. In other words, normally it was under the Voting Rights Act, which was passed in 1965. The idea was that there were a bunch of southern states that were going to gerrymander black voters out of any ability to have any impact on elections. And so the Voting Rights Act said that particular states have to go through a pre-clearance process with the federal government to demonstrate that they were not, in fact, acting in racially discriminatory ways. Then there was a Supreme Court decision a couple of years ago that said it's now been 50 years since the Voting Rights Act. And so we don't need to do this anymore because there's not evidence that there's a dramatic attempt in southern states particularly to quash the black vote. Okay, well, that basically the, the act here would be an attempt to undo that Supreme Court de decision and, again, make it the DOJ's prerogative to draw districts. So if you want Merrick Garland drawing districts, then this is the bill for you. Of course, the DOJ has a history of filing unwarranted objections under Section 5 based on its bias in favor of liberal advocacy groups. And that bias has not changed, of course. So that is one of the acts that the Democrats are, are seeking to move forward. There's another act that the Democrats are, are seeking to move forward as well that does something similar. You know, that, that is an attempt to, to put into place all sorts of ballot restrictions, preventing voter ID from being implemented, encouraging ballot harvesting, all, all the rest of it. Yeah, but they don't have support for it. So what they're trying to do is cudgel Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema into killing the filibuster in order so that the support will then, will then happen. Right? If they kill the filibuster, then presumably they can get it done with 50 votes plus Kamala Harris. Now, here's the thing. If you're Manchin or Cinema. You really have no incentive to kill the filibuster. The reason you have no incentive to kill the filibuster is because then you're actually going to be held to account. See, the filibuster protects cinema and mansion. The filibuster, these are two blue senators from red or purple states, right? Arizona is a purple state and West Virginia is a bright red state. The filibuster protects Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema because they can vote in favor of Democratic proposals 
on the actual floor. And then they can not have that have any consequence because the filibuster kills it. And they never have to vote for anything controversial. If they kill the filibuster, suddenly they're held to account by their own Democratic Party base and or Republican voters who don't like how they vote. So they have, there's no interest for Joe Manchin or Kirsten Cinema in killing the filibuster. So Democrats have tried to create selective kills of the filibuster. What they're trying to do is encourage Manchin and Cinema to kill the filibuster only on bills where Manchin and Cinema really, really like the bill. But Manchin and Cinema, it doesn't make a lot of sense for them to do that because once they've opened the door, then the question becomes, why don't they just do that for everything? According to Politico today, a group of Democrats, including Raphael Warnock of Georgia, Tim Kaine of Virginia, Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota, and Jeff Merkley of Oregon, began meeting with Joe Manchin to design a modified version of H.R. 1 that all 50 Democrats could back. They came up with this Freedom to Vote Act. It is a massive reform bill addressing voting rights, election integrity, campaign finance, and gerrymandering, but it is more tailored to address problems of electoral subversion, like removing election officials without cause that became apparent after 2020. Manchin shopped the bill to Republicans. Nobody joined up. So they were now talking about nuking the filibuster. That is very, very unlikely. It is unlikely that they're going to nuke the filibuster, especially because the Republicans do have an alternative. The Republican alternative has been pushed by folks like Yuval Levin over at American Enterprise Institute. The Republican alternative is basically to prevent some of the worst sort of election bill abuses that could theoretically be put forward, like simply throwing away votes, right, in favor of a, a reform to the Electoral Count Act. You remember that the Electoral Count Act was the bill that was that was misinterpreted by some legal advisors to President Trump in order to suggest that, that Mike Pence could simply throw out electoral votes and then change the certification of the election. That's really not what the ECA says. We talked about it at length back during December and January. The Electoral Count Act of 18, 1887 does not allow the vice president of the United States to simply throw out votes that have been state certified. Yuval Levin says it could be clarified. He says that some Republicans insist the process of counting and certifying the votes in some states was corrupt in 2020. There's no evidence to support specific claims on this front, but greater care and transparency about post-election administration would serve us well regardless and could render such claims easier to test and refute in ways that would build public confidence. Reforms focused on these themes would be a more productive path than what we've seen so far, which are efforts focused mostly on voting itself, on who can cast a ballot, when and by what means. If we take both parties' most high-minded arguments at face value, they're worried about problems that barely exist. It's easier than ever to vote. Registration has gotten much simpler. So Democrats complaining that there is a, an attempt to crack down on voting, they're just lying. It's not true. Voter turnout is at historic highs. Black and white voting rates now rise and fall together. Meanwhile, voter fraud is vanishingly rare as well. The most thorough database of cases maintained by one of the staunchest conservative defenders of election integrity suggests a rate of fraud so low it could not meaningfully affect outcomes. So what exactly could be done? Well, theoretically, they should turn to narrowly tailored legislation, says Yuval Levin, focused on post-election administration. Such a bill could, for example, limit the ability of state officials to remove local election administrators without cause and prohibit the harassment of election workers. It could mandate a mechanism for post-election audits while requiring a clear standard for rendering election results final. It could modernize and simplify the ECA. Some of those ideas were included in the Freedom to Vote Act, which is the Democratic Joe Manchin joined bill. But that bill also includes a bunch of other stuff like campaign finance, redistricting, that make it unacceptable. So they could narrow it down. So that will probably be Mitch McConnell's return offer to the Democrats and Democrats will turn it down because they don't care about that. Democrats aren't interested in shoring up the Electoral Account Act. Democrats are interested in completely revising the way we do voting in this country. Why? Well, because if they don't, then they're going to lose. Representative Ted Lieu of California makes this particularly clear. He said yesterday that the 2022 midterms are going to decide democracy. Well, if you actually believe this, then why not change all the rules? 
If you change all the rules, then presumably you won't lose as badly. Democracy itself is on the ballot this November. 147 Republicans voted to not certify the Electoral College results. And more than a year later, not a single one of them can identify who allegedly stole the election nor explain how it was done. And that's because the election was not stolen. Donald Trump got crushed in the popular vote. He lost Electoral College. And what we see are Republican legislators trying to nullify the vote instead of adhering to our democracy. Okay, so his idea is, what if we completely revise the rules for how this stuff is done? Because if we don't do that, then they're, so in order for them, to, we have to stop them from stealing elections by stealing elections is the basic idea here. We have to burn the, Republic, the, the Republican, like small R Republican village in order to save the small D Democratic village. If you want to save democracy, you have to end democracy. You have to kill the filibuster. You have to redo how all the voting is done. By the way, it was five seconds ago the Democrats were defending the filibuster. Here was Chuck Schumer just a few years back talking about how eliminating the filibuster would be doomsday for democracy. This is 2005. The ideologues in the Senate want to turn what the founding fathers called the cooling saucer of democracy into the rubber stamp of dictatorship. We will not let them. They want, because they can't get their way on every judge, to change the rules in midstream, to wash away 200 years of history. They want to make this country into a banana republic, where if you don't get your way, you change the rules. Are we going to let them? No! It'll be a doomsday for democracy if we do. I mean, I wish that Chuck Schumer today met this Chuck Schumer from the past. Right. It would, be, it would be very interesting to watch as they, they stare at each other, confused, because everything that he's like Chuck Schumer is just a war with his old self. Because, again, when it comes to politics, consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. You're all for killing the filibuster when it favors you, and you're all for keeping the filibuster when it favors you. And it's death for democracy whenever you don't get your way. OK, that, that's really what this this January 6th stuff is, is about. It, it, and it was, by the way, within 24 hours of January 6th. We'll get to that in one second. And I get it. If you're a Democrat out there, or you're not a conservative, or you don't vote against Democrats like I do, you go, oh, what's the problem with that? Both parties try to work the system. My adult life, the libs have always said every election's bullshit. They fought everything, and they've done everything with violence. I mean, just violence. Here's just a soundbite to cover this is lauded in our press aoc is a, a a darling she is awesome but this is what she said about people criticizing her from going outside her lockdown state and being unmasked in florida which swalwell did too Creepy weirdos. That is how Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is describing Republicans who are attacking her for taking a New Year's trip to Florida with her boyfriend. She responded to one critic saying, quote, if Republicans are mad, they can't date me. They can just say that instead of projecting their sexual frustrations onto my boyfriend's feet, you creepy weirdos. Uh, joining us now to discuss is CNN political commentator and conservative blogger Mary Catherine Hamm. And you know, Mary Catherine, Happy New Year to you. We were wondering, we were thinking, how do we wish her a happy new year? And we thought, let's wake her up early and talk about feet with her. So, I'm you know, fine with it. what do you make of all this? Well, first of all, I woke up like this. So I think you have an authority <laughs> on 
people being sexually frustrated by my mere existence. It happens all the time. And I'm glad to be able to discuss this important issue with you. The plight of the super hot in America has long been ignored. Uh, and AOC has started a national conversation about this. Uh, and, you know, I know we've all dealt with it. Uh, and by that, I mean AOC and you, Brianna, and myself and John. Well, and the point is, um, you know, we can start an organization or something. And just the other day, uh, I noticed the IRS keeps sending me notices, even though I've never expressed any interest in them. And it's like, why are you so obsessed with me? Uh, but one day you wake up and you think to yourself, is there more to life than being really, really ridiculously good looking? Uh, you know, I did it and now I'm here. Uh, AOC did it and now she's a congresswoman. And <laughs> in that capacity, you have to answer questions. And like, I'm goofing on this because it's goofy, but to question the motives of every questioner you come across, uh, I don't think behooves you. Um, and she can answer the questions about being in Florida without going here. And by the way, I know because I'm talking about this, there are weirdos who will get weird in my comment section right now. Hi, how's it going? Um, you can't date me. Uh, this is the plight, the real plight of actually being a woman in the public eye. And there is some of that out there, but we also have to answer fair questions. And a fair question to AOC is, hey, is your trip with your partner to Florida dangerous to yourself and others? Uh, and if not, why not? Uh, because if it's not, it suggests that people can use their personal freedom to make decisions about their. So we recently went to Florida, um, where Republicans developed an obsession with Riley's feet. So <laughs> give the people what they want. You know what happened to a Republican woman if she said that? I mean, they call her sluts. And just on COVID, how they have politicized all of this. Axios on coronavirus case hit new record. Florida Senate's absent in public and press has been source of national debate. He was with his wife. Then they totally scrub this man speaking. It was, of course, I'm not going to play it, Joe Rogan, but this line, they had to scrub it. It is trying, they are trying to wipe it from the internet. From basically European intellectual inquiry into what the heck happened in Germany in the 20s and 30s. You know, very intelligent, highly educated population, and they went barking mad. Um, and how did that happen? Um, the answer is mass formation psychosis. When you have a society that has become decoupled from each other and has free-floating anxiety and a sense that things don't make sense, we can't understand it, and then their attention gets focused by a leader or a series of events on one small point, just like hypnosis. They literally become hypnotized and can be led anywhere. And one of the aspects of that phenomena is the people that they identify as their leaders, the ones typically that come in and say, you have this pain and I can solve it for you. I and I alone, okay, can fix this problem for you. Okay, then they will lead, they will follow that person through, it doesn't matter whether they lie to them or whatever. The data are irrelevant. And furthermore, anybody who questions that narrative is to be immediately attacked. They are the other. <clears throat> this is central to mass formation psychosis. And this is what has happened. We had all those conditions. If you remember back before 2019, everybody was complaining, the world doesn't make sense, blah, blah, blah. Um, and we're all isolated from each other. 
We're all on our little tools. We're not connected socially anymore, except through social media. Um, and then this thing happened and everybody focused on it. That is how mass formation psychosis happens. And that is what's happened here. Now they scrub that, but this shit is okay and admirable. Yeah, again, I, I get the idea of creating a moral standard here and really judging, being willing to judge and say things out loud. The question is, and I also get protecting the vulnerable. Kids under five can't get vaccinated. People who are older and maybe have medical conditions, even if they are vaccinated, are vulnerable. And I get acting in ways that make their lives safer. But by and large, if you're vaccinated and boosted, even if you get infected, you're going to be fine. You're going to be fine here. It's the unvaccinated who are going to be hurt. So, so why should anyone who is boosted bother at this point to do anything that makes the unvaccinated more safe? Well, look, I want us to act as a community. I want us to act as a team. When you're fighting a war, you need all hands on deck. I don't want to reject those who still haven't done the right thing. I'll condemn them. I'll shame them. I'll blame them. But I don't want to exclude them. They've got to come around. We can't win this war. We're going to be talking about COVID this time next year if we don't get more people to do the right thing. So we can't write them off. We can penalize them more. We can say, you're going to pay more on your hospital bill if you weren't vaccinated. You can't get life insurance or disability insurance at affordable rates if you aren't vaccinated. Those companies should not treat us as equals in terms of what the financial burdens are that that disease imposes. So I can think of a number of ways in which we should say, mm -hmm. here's the stick, get on board. At the same time, we do need everyone. It's a war. you got to have uh, all your troops unified if we're ever going to win it. Yeah, it's still... By and large, it's the unvaccinated who aren't wearing masks. It's the unvaccinated who aren't social distancing. It's the unvaccinated. They go all the way over your head. Not the most comfortable, but very, very snug. Not mm -hmm. a lot of air is getting in between the sides of my cheeks mm -hmm. or the tops of my cheeks. Hey, hey, Vic, the kids are back in the classroom, at least the overwhelming majority of them. Um, what's, what's the re recommendation for our youngest learners? Okay, so we talked to Dr. John Torres about this because I actually just sent my kids out the door this morning, minutes ago, with two masks. He says, obviously, the KN95 and 95 are the most effective, but it can be really hard to find them in small kid sizes. And also, to keep them on your kids all day, they're not the most comfortable. So the second best option is to make sure you have a kid-size surgical mask. And by the way, look at what a difference the kid-size mask is from the adult size. So you really want to make sure you have one that fits your child's face and you wanna layer the cloth mask over that mask. So mm. the surgical mask goes on first, no. and then the cloth mask. If you can't do that, surgical mask alone, Dr. Torres says, least best, but better than nothing, the two-layer cotton mask that fits your child. The best mask certainly is the one that your child will wear and keep on the yeah. whole day when they're in the classroom. All right, good advice, all right. We're gonna get it soon, and then we can play. Yay! I'm so excited. We will get to play together when it's done. The shot. We will get to play together when it's done. The shot. We will get to play together. We will get to play together. We will get to play together when it's done. The shot.
I, I don't even understand. But that's what they do. They they wipe everything off. And even the New York Times, no way to grow up. For the past two years, Americans have accepted more harm to children in exchange for less harm to adults. It's fucking unbelievable. It is just unbelievable. I... I mean, you add all this up, all right? You add it all up, the way they have done this. Uh, this is a real tweet. Good morning from my 95 in January. I've been trapped, blah, 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 blah. Somebody says, and I won't even read all of them. I'm not going to do it because I was going to do it, but it was Yunkin's fault, and he's not even in office. He's the elect. All of Biden's polls disapprove of inflation, economic recovery. I'm not even going to play it. We played it too many times. The whole country thinks he's a garbage human. But we were told unity. We were told that they're going to bring back facts and science. National Geographic author Kyle Rittenhouse killed two black men. They're still saying it. They've been saying it over and over and over. Seven ways the left has flipped on COVID since Omicron. In-person schooling, quarantine late, testing positive, hospitalization versus cases, mask mandates, vaccine mandates, boosters. All of it has changed because they're seeing the polling and they, they can't have that. They can't. But, but I really want you just to listen. This... <laughs> This is the media's worst lies of 2021, and I want you to listen to Pasaki because I want you to remember what the media said about the Trump administration. CDC, um, you know, Rochelle Walensky and Dr. Fauci, as we've talked about earlier this week, had conflicting accounts of whether testing was necessary. Dr. Walensky said part of that consideration was what people would tolerate. And we know that it's important to keep schools open, to keep the economy running. Isn't it time to incorporate some of those other uh, messaging points into the, this administration's discussions about you know, how we emerge from this pandemic. We talk about how it's led by the science and we're following the science, but it seems like we're also following you know, economic needs and political needs and logistical needs. Well, here's the difference from the last administration. Uh, we are not uh, driving our decision-making on how we're addressing the pandemic through messaging uh, or through political concerns. We're driving it by what the CDC and the medical doctors and the experts there convey. Uh, they change their, they update their guidance, they change their guidance. Uh, certainly, I'm sure they have disagreements internally about what guidance they should put out. Uh, that is a healthy part of a discussion of a policy process. But that's what we're driven by. And that's also why we do COVID briefings, so that you all can ask those questions, as you just did this morning an hour ago. The president yesterday said this continues to be a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Isn't it also fair to say that it's still also a pandemic of the vaccinated, given the breakthrough cases that we've been seeing? Well, Jackie, we also know that you are seven time, 17 times 
uh, more likely to die of COVID if you are not vaccinated and 20 times more likely to be hospitalized. Uh, so I think in terms of the impact, the dire impact on people across the country, we should be very clear about uh, the impact of not getting vaccinated and the people who will be, uh, be hurt, uh, be hospitalized and uh, face the threat of death the most. And those are the people who are unvaccinated. So the president is making remarks on Thursday, uh, as you said, and he has often denounced the January 6th events. But could you talk a little bit about why he refrains, to the extent that he does, James, uh, from condemning ex-president Trump personally, uh, not just for January 6th, but for his ongoing campaign, which is very persistent, almost daily, maybe at least weekly, um, to discredit Americans' faith in the election process. Um, so in, in short, does President Biden think that his predecessor is acting normally, or does he think he's a threat to democracy, which is what some people would say? You know, I, I have to say, I don't think we've held back on this front. Uh, and uh, But I think there's a larger message here to the country about who we are and who we need to be moving forward. Does he consider ex-President Trump to be a threat to democracy? I think he's spoken to this in the past. Um, on voting rights, the midterm elections are 10 months away. Does the, is the president concerned that the window is closing to pass legislation that could have an impact on how people vote in the midterm elections? I'm not going to make a prediction of that. He absolutely feels that getting voting rights done is fundamental. It's essential. Uh, he is going to work uh, in close lockstep with Leader Schumer and others in Congress to get this done. Uh, but I'm not going to make a prediction at this point on the timeline. It's obviously a first priority for them in the Senate. Is it a first priority for the president? Yes, he's working with Leader Schumer on it. In December, he said at South Carolina State University, we're going to keep up the fight until we get it done. What does that look like? What does the fight look like for voting rights for President Biden? It means getting it passed into law and signing it into law. So what steps is he taking over the next several weeks to make that happen? Well, I, I would first say that the president has, uh, you can expect to hear more. Let's turn to that report on jobs. A record four and a half million people quit their jobs in November, while the month ended with 10.6 million jobs open. Our Stephanie Rule joins us. Stephanie, what's behind these numbers? Lester, the headline is dramatic, but it doesn't tell the whole story. What we're seeing is a workforce shift. People on lower wage jobs like retail and hospitality have higher exposure to COVID and a lot more stress these days with frustrated customers. Many of them are moving into work from home jobs or more secure environments like warehouses. The good news though, all of this is a sign of economic strength, that so many can quit and find other work, and they are gaining leverage with employers. Right now, higher pay, better perks. But the downside across the board, wages aren't moving up as fast as inflation is. And Lester, higher pay doesn't mean much when everything costs more. All right, Stephanie, thanks for... Go ahead. Another, oh, go ahead. Sorry, another from uh, Todd Gilman, a fellow CSU sure. rotation at the Dallas Morning News. Um, does the White House have a reaction to Senator Cruz saying um, President Biden may be impeached if the Republicans take back the House next year, specifically for the border policies? Well, uh, our reaction is maybe Senator Cruz can work with us on uh, getting something done on comprehensive immigration reform and putting in place measures that will help uh, make sure smart security uh, is what we see at the border, uh, taking a more humane approach to the border instead of uh, name calling, accusation calling and making predictions of the future. Go ahead. There are promising signs in this current wave of COVID-19. New research is adding to the body of evidence that the Omicron strain results in milder illness than previous strains. We seem to be, as a, as a nation, in a pretty good place 
to handle this variant? Let's hope, right? I mean, fingers crossed. The the data, anecdotal though, it still may be, is pretty promising, I guess, uh, relative to what it was in March 2020. Um, that said, you know, you talk to any medical professional, there's a few things they're, they're worried about. While there are some promising signs here, I do admit that, and I don't want to be a Debbie Downer. Obviously, we're heading into the holiday season. Uh, you know, you, you do want to you know, temper your excitement by saying, okay, there's still a lot of unknowns out there. Of, of course, and so noted, uh, Madam <laughs> Downer. Okay, well, you, you, you play that role, Ebenezer. Yeah, I'll just start by noting that Sam brings me down every day. And Mika, also some other really great news, and then we'll get on uh, to also, uh, I... I think I don't know if you could call it breaking news on the supply chain. Christmas miracle. Uh, on the Christmas miracle, <laughs> we'll talk about that. But uh, we had heard two weeks ago, three weeks ago, not to expect to get those I know. packages. That's why I got all my Christmas shopping done at Thanksgiving. Everything's working. Everything's clicking. You know, it was uh, Jonathan about a month ago. We were talking wow. about inflation and the supply chain Strong. crisis. It was a massive crisis. I'm not exactly sure what everybody's done over the past month, but whatever it, whatever they have done, uh, as we won't call it a Christmas miracle, but uh, <laughs> we, we will say it's a, a heck of a turnaround from what most of America was expecting one or two months ago. Yeah, Jen Psaki took the briefing room podium yesterday and joked that the White House saved Christmas. Um, and certainly they do deserve some Put it credit. on a bumper sticker. <laughs> yes, the Republicans would put it on a bumper sticker. The, 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 the White House should put this on the, uh, you know, the White House that yeah. saved Christmas. If you don't it's, think Republicans yay. wouldn't do that, uh, you don't know Republicans. Yeah, yeah well, Democrats are too often accused of uh, participating. We talk a lot about biased reporting. This video isn't about that. We're looking at times from the past year when the media straight up lied to their audiences, whether to serve a narrative or push an agenda. These are five of the worst intentional media deceptions of 2021. Here's our first pick. 60 Minutes uses deceptive editing to generate a scandal out of thin air. In April, Sharon Alfonsi from CBS gave this report on 60 Minutes, where she gave the impression that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis was caught up in a pay-to-play scandal involving vaccine distribution in Miami. Basically, she claimed that DeSantis was taking payoffs to approve certain retailers to distribute the vaccine, but not others. At one point, they ran this clip of her confronting the governor at a press conference, followed by this angry denial from him. The criticism is that it's pay to play, governor. It's wrong. it's wrong. It's a fake narrative. I just disabused you of the narrative and you don't care about the facts because obviously I laid it out for you in a way that is irrefutable. Well, I, I and so it's clearly not. Except they completely cut out the first two minutes of his response to her which included an avalanche of points that, if true, would disprove her pay-to-play theory. In other words, they edited his substantive answer into a dismissive dodge. Moving on to number two, from the Washington Post, there's no migrant surge at the southern U.S. border. Here's the Washington Post's fact-checker, Glenn Kessler, pushing this non-factual article around on Twitter. There's literally no wiggle room on the numbers, by the way. Look at the CBP data on border crossings. That blue line is 2021. You could write this article at any point in 2021, and it would still be wrong. Later on, the Post changed the title to, The Migrant Surge at the U.S. Southern Border is Actually a Predictable Pattern. In other words, this article was supposed to be damage control for Biden. And hey, by the way, here's candidate Biden back in 2019 actually promising a surge at the border if he's elected. I would, in fact, make sure that there is, we immediately surge to the border. All those people are seeking asylum. We give this article four Pinocchios. It's pure disinformation. Number three, CNN lies that Joe Rogan is taking medicine intended for livestock. 
Joe Rogan, popular podcaster, you've probably heard of him. When Rogan caught COVID, he said he was treating it with ivermectin, which is an oral medication that people take for parasitic infections. Thing is, it's also used in way higher doses to treat livestock for worms. So CNN ran with this technicality and falsely claimed no less than six times that Rogan was trying to treat his coronavirus with a horse deworming agent. So yeah, pretty dishonest. Here's where things get really twisted though, because when the whole thing blew up, CNN's PR department gave this absolutely bonkers statement to the Washington Post. The only thing that CNN did wrong here was bruise the ego of a popular podcaster who pushed dangerous conspiracy theories and risked the lives of millions of people in doing so. So based on this statement, the people running CNN think it's okay to intentionally lie to audiences in service of a greater good. They admit to doing this, and they actually seem proud of it. I don't care what you think about Rogan or about Ivermectin. You should still have a problem with CNN's behavior in this case. Moving on to number four. NBC deceptively edits a 911 call prior to a police shooting. In April, a Columbus, Ohio police officer shot and killed 16-year-old Makia Bryant, who was moments away from stabbing another girl. All of the broadcast networks got their hands on a recording of the 911 call, and in it, you can hear the caller saying, These grown girls over here trying to fight us, trying to stab us. NBC cut that part of the call out of their report. And when it came to the attempted stabbing, they only reported it as something that the police were saying in defense of the officer. They wanted this to be a story about a racist police officer gone rogue, which, for those who have been living under a rock, is kind of a media favorite. Last up, and it's probably not a surprise, the absolute worst media lie from this year was critical race theory isn't taught in schools. The media were saying this over and over for months. This is so dishonest for so many reasons. There are mountains of evidence that kids are taught race ideology in public and private schools. The Virginia Department of Education codified critical race theory by name as part of its curriculum back in 2015. Up until critical race theory became a national issue, a lot of teachers unions and other organizations explicitly endorsed it. They've since scrubbed those endorsements from their websites, by the way. School administrators from around the country have come forward and admitted that it's in the curriculum. Um, we, our curriculum is uh, deeply using critical race theory um, especially in social studies, but you'll find it uh, in English language arts and the other uh, disciplines. And a few minutes on Google will turn up videos of teachers bragging about how heavily they infuse their lessons with critical race theory. Meanwhile, the media are doing this. By the way, critical race theory is enormously useful. It's a graduate level construct. It's not taught in K through 12. And again, it is not being taught in grade schools. No one is teaching critical race theory K through 12. Just to be clear, can you just repeat, it is a law school tech. What is critical race theory? There's no evidence. It's been taught in public schools. It is not taught in any Virginia high school. It's not taught in public schools. This is sinister. We're past lying at this point. This is the media forming a united front to straight up gaslight parents about what their own kids are learning. That about covers it. This isn't a comprehensive list, but we think that these are some of the worst lies that we've heard this past year from the media. Remember to diversify your sources of news. And it never hurts to do your own research. The party that wants you to force masks on kids, that has my mom so scared I had to buy her some K95s, even though she doesn't leave the house, that's going after big pork, big chicken, big everything. And I, and I want to ask you, could Donald Trump 
every day being a fake White House. Why is he in a fake White House? Who has brought in a total racist to run the DOJ? Brought in near a tandem, a meat eater. Biden judicial nominee once declared proof of citizenship citizenship is voter suppression. How can you support anything these people are doing? They were supposed to be facts, science, yada yada. And are this is America with everything we just played. This soundbite from ABC. This is why I do a podcast. It's time for the worst soundbite. When the liberal media is pushing one of them agenda story and says, This is America. 2021. Good. But when I look forward to 2024, I'm deeply concerned by these numbers because what it says to me is that people on both sides are not ready to accept the results of the next election. Both sides? I absolutely think that is the case. You look back at 2017, look at the ABC poll and whether Trump was legitimately elected. It was about six to eight points off of this one right now, not that far off. Hillary Clinton asked in 2017, was Trump legitimately elected point blank? She did not say yes. She said she had questions. You think Democrats, if Donald Trump runs again, runs again if Donald Trump wins in 2024, you think Democrats are going <laughs> to think he was legitimately elected? you got to be kidding me. There's no precedent for that. I mean, this is purely in the Republican camp. The reality is, is even the polls suggested the Democrats agree that this was not about democracy. This is about ruining democracy, not protecting it. 25% of Democrats said violence was acceptable in that poll. In 2017, a third of Hillary Clinton voters said Donald Trump was not legitimately elected. They didn't, you're they saying didn't this take the same kind of actions it, that we exactly. saw Exactly. Absolutely. No that is the escalation. If you don't think that's going to happen in 2024 and that we need to be focused on that, if we need to be sides... focused on today, because this was a year ago and there still has been very little action for the folks who were the masterminds, facilitators of this. And if we don't, you can't move forward without accountability. And this commission and the Department of Justice and anybody else with authority needs to send a clear message to anybody who's looking at this and thinks it's okay to say that it is not okay. I want to bring the question to Chris Chris Christie that I asked Liz Cheney. It sure seemed that she was leaning in to at least the possibility that President Trump was criminally negligent. It certainly did to me, too, listening to what she had to say. I think, look, I had a rule when I was U.S. attorney when you were dealing with a high-profile potential defendant to say to my prosecutors all the time, it better be a headshot. Mm. It better be a headshot. You better be able to take the person out without any, forget beyond a reasonable doubt. And, and the fact is that what Justice Department officials are going to have to decide here ultimately is, do they have that? And they better make sure they do, because it will be an enormously politicized trial if it were to occur no matter what. And you've got to be able to have the American people have confidence in the judicial system. We've seen it happening now. We've seen some of these police trials that have been going on, where the American people are, again, I think, having their confidence restored in the judicial system in this country. And that's going to take time. We don't need to do something that 
undermines that. So let's look at what the facts are and let's make sure it's a clear shot. That Merrick Garland seems to be damned if he does, damned if he doesn't. Well, I think he needs to do what's right here. And I think we all watched what happened that day. We know it didn't come out of thin air. There's a reason that all of his associates said stop this thing. They know he had the power to stop it because he was the one that started it. And in the midst of it, the speeches that he made that day, saying that they were heroes, saying that this is, there is a lot of evidence. And I think at this... But that's not criminal negligence. That's dereliction of duty and he should have been impeached for it. if I, if I encourage and facilitate a crime, I can be charged with a crime. It's called a conspiracy. It's called, he created the condition for it. He, he talked about the day. He, people had t-shirts for the day. And he told them, when you leave this rally, go and get our democracy back. I, don't, I can't think of a clearer way. And here's the funny thing. Republicans are always saying they're about law and order and back the blue, unless it's their own people. Justice should be served here whether they wear a red jersey or a blue jersey, period. Well, let me put my purple jersey back on. Uh, The president, the former president that day said to his supporters on the ellipse, fight like hell. Yeah. And then they marched to the Capitol to fight like hell. We still have officers who are recovering from their wounds, 140. And we still have a country that has not recovered from this so-called conspiracy. The fact that so many Republicans believe that the election was illegitimate. Now, look, I was involved in an election where there was literally a tie. A little bit. But my ex-boss, and I have to give him credit again, Al Gore said, shut it down. We shut it down. Now, honestly, I was one of the best organizers. You know, I wanted to, you know, I wanted one more (laughs) rumble, okay? But he said, shut it down. That's leadership. President Trump, former President Trump, has not shown any leadership whatsoever. And in fact, this week he's going to have another one of his meow messaging because he is still whining about what happened on November 3rd. The American people said Joe Biden is our president. Donald Trump has not accepted that. And because of that, Sarah, we are living in this dangerous moment where you can stoke people to be angry and upset simply because they lost. All right, those are two I, different let, things. Those are but two let, let, let Sarah answer first. She just told her name, then go back to you. Two different things, babe. Two different All right, things. Lawyer. Here's the two different things. Here are the two different things. Is Donald Trump wrong for not having accepted the results of the election and conceded like Al Gore did? Absolutely wrong for not doing that. Is there something that can indict him for a crime? That's something the facts are going to have to show. I agree. And Donald Trump, everything you just said is true. And everything you said about Al Gore is true. The problem is, and I think we're taking this in the moment instead of a historical lens, this has been increasing. It has been escalating. It's why I bring up Hillary Clinton, not about the whataboutism of the whole thing, but because this has been slowly happening over time. And we're the frogs sitting in the boiling pot, not seeing what's coming next. Hillary Clinton didn't say the election was legitimate. Now, Donald Trump's not saying the election was legitimate. This isn't going anywhere good. Hillary Clinton was not the sitting president of the United States at the time. And neither is he right now. So when he gives that speech next week, which is stupid, it's not that different than Hillary Clinton being asked president. whether it's legitimate. Yeah, the poll numbers different. you cite are accurate, but do you really believe that both sides bear the share, oh, same amount no. of responsibility no. for what's happening right Absolutely now? Absolutely not. The same amount right now, no. But I'm telling you, if Donald Trump runs and wins in 2024, we're going to be having a really different conversation sitting here. And when both sides know that the other side will not accept the results of an election, there is a game theory problem here. Well, they, were act, they will act in advance of that election. That's what I'm concerned about. This isn't a November 2024 problem. This is coming, and no one seems to be doing anything. Well, it's coming in.
They literally, because they own every form of media, that everybody's that stupid. Here's just year of anti-Trump, anti-life, and anti-free speech censors track. And this is what makes it all 10 times worse. Happy New Year. Congratulations. We survived an entire year enduring loads of BLM propaganda, COVID-19 gaining a few variants, tons of big tech censorship, and the most surprising of all, we lived nearly one whole year with Joe Biden as our president. Let's go, Brandon. I <laughs> yeah. agree. I know. It was a surprise for me, too. Welcome to episode 19 of MRC's newest video series, Censor Track with TR. This is our first episode of 2022, and boy, oh boy, did last year show ample conservative censorship. Unfortunately, we're going to have to start off the new year with some bad news. Today, we're highlighting some of the worst big tech censorship cases of 2021. First is the worst. Okay, I had to throw this in there. My cat is named Donald Trump after all. Though Trump was only president for 20 days in 2021, he was permanently banned on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and many others. Come on now, no matter what side you stand on, you gotta admit, Trump's tweets were funny. But following the January 6th riot, one big tech company after another banned the sitting president of the United States like a bunch of teenagers who get mad and throw tantrums. What better way to strip free speech than to silence the leader of the free world? And yet, big tech still claims to be nonpartisan? Oh, and let me mention, Twitter allows this guy, yeah, the leader of Iran, to surf free online. Awesome. Okay, second is the best? Mmm, no. I can honestly say that this second case of censorship was the saddest. Was it frustrating? Yeah. Biased? Mm-hmm. But worst of all, this case literally impacted the lives of the most vulnerable, the unborn. In September, the founder of the pro-life group Live Action reported that Google banned $170,000 worth of ads for the abortion pill reversal drug. The reversal pill has the potential to reverse the effects of the abortion pill and save the life of a child. But abortion activists, aka baby-killing supporters, were PO'd that as of September, 2,500 babies were saved as a result of the abortion pill reversal drug. So, at their request, Google banned the ads. Google also banned ads for Live Action's Baby Olivia video, which detailed a child's life from conception to birth. Because watching a scientific visualization of a child's life in utero is probably too pro-science or would just get people to see what they're actually killing when they have an abortion. A child. Third time's the charm, I guess? What's been the most prevalent news topic this year? COVID-19. The thing is, we are in a pandemic and we need information to make the best decisions for our bodies. Well, this year, big tech took a liking to shutting down conversations about COVID-19. We've tallied more than 470 cases around COVID-19 related censorship. Why? Well. Conversations generally result in multiple opinions, decisions, and thoughts. That's something big tech doesn't like since they only support what fits the leftist narrative. What to Expect's app called Pregnancy and Baby Tracker is no longer allowing parents to discuss the potential risks, rewards, or efficacy of vaccinating children. Since the left wants everyone and their mother to be forced to take the jab, the pregnancy app won't even let parents discuss what is the best choice for them in order to limit so-called vaccine misinformation. 
I guess I missed the memo where conversations, questions, and differing opinions became tantamount to misinformation. In the same vein of big tech not caring about parental choice, YouTube removed the Family Research Council president's interview talking about laws that bypass parental consent for vaccines. Tony Perkins is the president of FRC, and he talked about how 11-year-olds can get vaccinated without parental consent. Yeah, I know, 11-year-olds can barely make popcorn, but they're apparently qualified to make a major medical decision without mom's help. Say what? Here's a theme we harped on all year. Big tech is overstepping. The internet is flooded with leftist social media sites that aim to appeal to the left's narrative only. Censorship is not only just annoying and frustrating, big tech censorship is interfering with human life and free speech, and that is a terrifying fact. I pray that 2022 is a prosperous year where there's way less biased big tech censorship, where there's an emphasis on free speech, and I pray that people get off the bandwagon and recognize the leftist biases of the media and of big tech. If you or someone you know has been censored, report those cases through our website, censortrack.org, and use hashtag free speech on social media sites to help us. That's what makes us all scary. It's not the fact that a political party is politicizing something that really wasn't that bad compared to one, uh, 2017, George Floyd. Every time the left doesn't win, people going to people's houses and beating them. The murders, the carnage, the lack of gun control in big cities because they have all these rules but they don't force it or literally filing charges on anybody that does anything because of their skin color or the fact that you're letting millions of people just walk in the country, two million this year, or the fact that you murder babies like a bunch of fucking Nazis. It's a suppression. It is the media in it. I mean, one of the worst things that's happened in our lives is... COVID and watching these people virtue signal. That's how you get put mask on kids. Eric Swalwell for me, January stick started as a presided to gavel the house in session. I asked chaplain Margaret Kibble to lead us in prayer. A few hours later, she abruptly returned to podium as the mob sent on the chamber to pray for us. All of us. It felt like the last rites of democracy. One year ago today, insurrection violently stormed the U.S. Capitol with the intent of overturning a free and fair election. Incited by Donald Trump, it was planned attack against democracy. When the House floor was cleared on January 6th, about 30 of us were left behind. Blah, blah, blah. Trump and his allies are evil. Democrats have the power to secure free and fair elections in our country. Now, we must do that in the Senate. Can you join me in the fight to pass the historic voting rights legislation? 10.48 a.m. The media is teeing them up because they are part of the party. They're letting them do all these theatrics. I mean, we've run out of virtue signaling because we've been talking about this for a fucking year like it really was Pearl Harbor. And they're running out of ways, Pearl, you know, Pearl Harbor, 9-11, democracy was on the brink, using the word insurrectionist when it doesn't, sedition, it doesn't. This is Douglas Brinkley. Uh, but we have film footage of what happened on January 6th. We have proof. Uh, Dwight Eisenhower during World War II made sure all the Holocaust camps were filmed. So we've got the film footage. So now we're combating conspiracy theorists, deniers, and some, um, and, you know, trumpeteers. 
the fucking Holocaust. Now it's the Holocaust. You know, you can have two things in your head. You can look at BLM and go, hey, something really bad happened and you can understand it. And there were some people there fighting for what they believed was justice because they've been brainwashed their whole lives that cops go out and murder freaking black kids just for fun and sport. Even though the statistics don't show it, even though there's no truth, even though some of these cases are actually black people doing it. And actually studies have shown black people shoot first if they're a cop. But you can believe that. And then believe what happened financed by the media and Democrats was fucked up. Old ladies like my mother slept with knives because they went to the burbs. They fucked people up. They killed people. They burned whole cities down. They burned federal courthouses. They beat up officers. They burned cop cars. They fucking destroyed shit. It was carnage and stole. Just the damages, $3 billion. How about all the stuff they stole? And then the media amplified people as saying it was just reappropriation. And if they could go steal that Gucci bag and sell it, blah. And then to watch it just go as we don't prosecute people, we have smash and grabs, we have almost a thousand murders in Chicago. I mean, for fuck's sake. And then you can still say, I understand why Black Lives Matter is blah, 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 blah. And then you can look at 1-6 one day and go, what those fuckheads did, about 50 to 100 that actually did tussle with cops, did break windows, did fuck shit up. That was fucked up. And you can say Trump's speech was probably stupid. And then acknowledge it wasn't Pearl Harbor. Democracy was not on the brink. The only person that entered in after they evacuated or before they evacuated was Ashley Babbitt. She got shot in the face, unarmed, a woman, by a cop who didn't say anything. He just... Shot her after, right after a bunch of SWAT officers with guns walked right past the group. They did nothing. And then everybody was evacuated. A bunch of people walked around. One of them in a fucking Viking hat looking like a jackass. You can believe that. But what's wrong with these people is... What's always been wrong with the left, because they are the fascists. They tell you how to live, what to eat, what to drive. Then they punish you when you don't listen to them, even if you're one of them. This is nothing but kabuki theater. I used to have a soundbite for it. It's just kabuki theater to try to pass unconstitutional extreme overreach laws to federalize elections. Ben Shapiro broke it down really better than I could ever do with the simple fact they're just butthurt that they still don't have control over the Confederate States because it wasn't necessary after 50 fucking years. They want to district and set up so their people can win. They want ballot harvesting because it really worked. They want mail-in ballots because they that's how they got 81 million people to vote for this potted plant. 
That's what it's about. It's not about another 1-6. It's not about the next president or Republican saying, fuck it, I got cheated. No, it's about they're going to lose the ability to do it because they captured magic in the bottle in 2008 with a black guy who could sell a ketchup popsicle to a woman in white gloves. Gee, many crickets. I almost bought that shit. Until Joe the plumber. Then I realized he was just a socialist. And I was like, fuck that shit. And then in 2012, they convinced the whole country that a really good man, Mitt Romney, gave motherfuckers cancer. They convinced the whole place that motherfucking Rush Limbaugh, they, he ran the Republican Party. And he called a girl and paid $40,000 a semester at a Harvard school, a slut, because she was bitching. She couldn't get free birth control and couldn't fuck her mind out. They can't get that again. They got a bunch of old white motherfuckers. So they try to cobble against the coalition of the aggrieved. Those black people who still believe every Republican's going to put them in change. Gay people who think they're going to take away their rights. Women who just want to fuck like the whore they are and have a million abortions because they don't like what birth control does to their body. That's all they want. So they put that group together and it doesn't work because 2016 it didn't. They had the most highly qualified person on planet Earth. A lady with a shitter server. So they hatched by 2020. Well, we got COVID. And even though majority of the states are back to Earth. They're, they're working and they're not in lockdowns and they don't really have mass mandates and they're just moving on with their lives because COVID is really just the flu unless you're already sick and that they already knew because they're not stupid that people getting hit by lightning didn't die from COVID. They died from motherfucking lightning. And they just happen to have COVID. Well, we're going to change this on our emergency powers. And then they watched it. They could change 80 laws, ignore constitutions and state constitutions and laws and regulations they could stop counting in five states only and work the numbers so it could work and it was beautiful they got 81 million motherfuckers to vote for a guy who was in a basement who nobody liked So they keep rolling out emergency powers. It's either COVID or 1-6. They ring the Capitol in fencing and nothing happened except for a lefty shooting a cop. And all while this is all happening, our media, who's part of it, just ignores it all. That's the most frustrating thing about this. If any Republicans did this, if Republicans changed 80 voting laws, made a big deal about a riot that went bad, and then fucking ringed the Capitol, made it the green zone in Baghdad, and kept rolling out COVID restrictions and mandates that were fucking the economy up, you wouldn't see that spin you just saw that Biden saved Christmas and shit. I mean, for fuck's sake, you wouldn't see any of this. You wouldn't see a 1-6 speech. And if you did, afterwards they would excoriate him for the partisanship. The 1-6 committee would be treated like the IRS committee, the Fast and Furious committee, the fucking Benghazi committee. 
All those were partisan witch hunts. It was all bullshit. So a candidate they wanted and they were going to push to be the president said, what difference does it make? Some people fucking died. Shit happens. Get over it. And not be treated like a motherfucker who had a dog on his roof. Like Mitt Romney. That's our media. And that's who I hold responsible. You lauded George Floyd. You saw the tape at the beginning of this. 117 was democracy. Freedom of expression. We just didn't remember it. So when we got to George Floyd and people were standing in front of burning buildings and said mostly peaceful, they all kind of didn't get phased by it. Well, we wouldn't have been phased by it, but we were. We were like, look at that motherfucker. He's in front of a burning building saying shit just happens. The Speaker of the House could say people just do stuff when they tear everything down. They had the rehearsal in 2017. They had the rehearsal in 2000, motherfucking one and five, because the same shit happened when Bush got elected, and they didn't show it, and they didn't have committees on it. Nor they did, did they for fucking the, the world trade shit, or Occupy Wall Street, where people got fucking raped and they had fuck tents. Yet they found one guy carrying a Confederate flag. They found a black dude carrying a weapon at a tea party. I mean, do you remember what they did for the Women's March? A group that was found to be anti-Semitic and didn't want Jews in their ranks? That was wall-to-wall coverage. Then we got guys going and protesting lockdowns and doing Trump Caravans. They were terrorists. This is all real time. And the left and the media think, since they own Google and Facebook and Twitter, and you can't tweet that shit, you can't talk about this as a psychosis like that doctor, you can't state, hey, this is Kabuki theater because you'll get kicked off. That the majority, including independents and some Democrats, are now looking and going, inflation sucks, this guy's a moron. COVID sucks, he said he was going to fix it, he has not, we can't even get fucking tests. January 6th really wasn't that bad, because I remember those motherfucking Antifa BLM guys fucking my city up big time. Bigly. And they can see through it to say, you just want to change elections so you can win. If the last election was the most scrutinized election, as that fucking potted plant just said, and had no fucking fraudulent votes, and it was just all on the up and up, why do you need to change all the laws? Oh, I know, because Republicans won the state house, and when they did, they did the same thing Democrats did, like you do for Jerry Nadler, who has a strip of land the size of my ass, and they call it a district so he doesn't lose, and Nancy Pelosi and Schumer, little itsy-bitsy plots of fucking a garden is their district, so they never lose. They redistrict, and you're pissed, because your big plan didn't work. 
You just got the presidency. You lost Republican or Democrat seats in both chambers and barely, or I guess you gained in the Senate too, but you didn't take over like you thought you would. And now you see 2022 coming and you're going to get your ass handed to you. 25 fucking Democrats have retired because they know they can't win. On the other side, you just have Hockley who said, fuck it, I'm not going to win. And Cheney who thinks she can win as an independent slash Democrat. You're going to lose the House. You're going to lose seats in the Senate. Americans are done with this shit. All you've done is spend money and leave us all with the bill. You're like a fucking friend from high school or college that runs up a fucking Ruth Chris bill and leaves. So, of course, all they got is January 6th. What else do they have? Tying January to 6th to the fucking Holocaust is still not going to get the filibuster removed. And if you do that, 2022 is still going to come. Red states are just going to do what you do and ignore your federal laws, and they're going to require voter ID. And then when you freak out and the media starts running yappers, most of us normals are just going to go, hey, motherfucker, you had sanctuary cities and sanctuary abortion cities and all sorts of crazy ass shit. You guys just do vote by mail. You're fucked up. Fuck off. So part of me hopes they do it. Because then, in 2022, when the House turns to Republican, they just run all sorts of fucking shit that all of a sudden will be just partisan. And maybe we'll find out about Hunter Biden's laptop. And if Mr. Big is Biden getting the free shit, or maybe the people that he sexually harassed, or all the other shit that we've heard about with Trump, and maybe he'll get impeached four times for netnoid fucking shit. And the media can say it's all partisan bullshit. But most of us will stare at it and go, just like Billy Joel. Republicans didn't start the fire. Democrats have. They started that shit as long as I've been alive. Every Republican didn't deserve his election. It was lies. It was voter suppressions. Blacks didn't get a vote because they were all in fucking chains. Gays were getting beat and hung on fences like Matthew Shepard, another fucking lie. And we're just rolling that tape all over again because now all of a sudden democracy is in peril if Democrats don't run the country into the ground and turn us to a welfare state. Because that's all Build Back Better is. More freebies, motherfuckers. Stay the fuck home. The participation rate in our economy is so god-awful, it's not even funny. It was 10 million. What is it? 4 million people just quit in November and said, fuck this shit. I'm not a fucking accountant, but that's 14 million people that could be working, but they're not working. Because why would they? Uncle Biden's got a checkbook. And when Democrats finally realize that the two million motherfuckers he wants to end up or bring in here every year turns to eight million in four years, your vote's not going to count either, motherfucker. Because that's the plan. None of you get to vote, you don't matter. Unless you're black or part of the woke, you're not an American. 
you're a white supremacist terrorist. And you don't have the right to do shit in this country. They do. They get a picket. I mean, AOC and Swalwell are gods with our garbage media. Why do they always go to Florida, a state that is COVID central, that literally people are being stuck with needles to get COVID, unmasked, and it's okie dokie. And how does a sitting fucking representative say motherfuckers are spraying all over his feet? It's a sexual reference. How is that okay? Marjorie Taylor Greene actually tweeted facts from the CDC and got banned. She's an idiot. How is all this okay? That's the question we all need to ask ourselves on 1-6. Not if there's going to be an insurrection. Not if the next election is all going to be garbage. We need to be asking, how the fuck is all this okay? How can we be just all sorts of fucked up and all we're talking about is voter rights that don't need to be changed? 80% of all demographics are for voter ID, you morons. They want them. Because the left told them that elections can be stolen, not the right. So this wraps up another episode of Flyover Politics Podcast on this somber, somber day. Make sure you share this with your family and friends and disconnect from all your devices. Go to foppodcast.com. Before you disconnect, you see this podcast and all other podcasts, either on Rumble or SoundCloud. We're going to roll with, uh, I'm off tomorrow, uh, Sunday, got to work. Uh, yeah, let's go with next week, 15th, 15th of January, year of our Lord, 2022 will be our next podcast. Until then, stay safe. I'm in a fucking five to eight inches of snow falling right now. That's why I'm at the house. Got a fire burning. Gonna go take a winter's nap, get some sleepy on. But tune in next time, and thanks for listening.